Hey, everybody. We're really excited to announce that on Friday, August 19, we are going to be doing our first ever live show at the New York City Pinball Championships. Now, some of you may remember our emergency episode back in the day where we talked about Deep Root Pinball and the absolute torrent of scandals that came along with some of the worst pinball machines ever made. And if you don't know about it, go listen to the episode. But we're going to follow up on that story because, hey, history keeps happening in the world of pinball. So head on over to nycpinballchamps.com to get more information about that. And if you would like to get a discount, check out our Patreon. Muy caliente, muy caliente, Gloria. Hey, let's go conquer near and far. Look out, here comes Zanzibar. <laughs> let's crush them with our iron fist. They've this, got this nukes and boy, being, do this they look legendary tune they at some point, AJ. Look you're, you're, you're taking a lot of liberties with the melody. How long did it take you to come up with those lyrics? I know you really, you really care about that. 13 seconds. Great. Love okay. it. Um, uh, can you put it in Swahili next? <laughs> Welcome to the Worst of All Possible Worlds, the first and only podcast done entirely in Swahili. I am the Worst of All Possible AJs. I'm the Worst of All Possible Brian's. And I'm the Worst of All Possible Josh's. Here for yet another fun, exciting installment of the Worst of All Possible Worlds. And we're joined by longtime friend of the show and fan favorite, Nate Bethea. Hello. Thank you again for having me. I am very excited to talk about the uh, absolute scourge of my free time as a teenager and as a college student <laughs> to admire civilization um, from civilization two to civilization six with me randomly never playing civ five for some reason but playing Weird. civ six like mm, fucking wild so yeah mm -hmm. i'm excited to talk about it i'm, I'm inspired ex inspired to talk about uh the the um epistemology of a world in which you can in fact destroy a tank with a spearman you or certainly at least can. You could once. Now it's a bit more <laughs> yeah. challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, oh my god! In Civ Two, man, fucking phalanxes just could get the job done no matter what. And once you got pikemen, forget about it. We're 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 not <laughs> going to really be talking so much about Civ Two today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Civilization as a series overall, and then we're really going to be digging more specifically into Civilization Six because I know that is the one that we all sort of have the most common experience with probably the best way to start an episode about civilization and and by the way nate we're very happy also to have you on i should say this we're very happy to have you mm -hmm. on to talk about something that isn't going to torment your soul and that isn't also <laughs> going to ask you to convert to our better knowledge at once yeah <laughs> it, maybe maybe not but at least it's not more fucking odyssey uh, You've and, done two you know, episodes of Odyssey in a row, Nate, and yeah. we wanted and to reward that. But that. I've had to listen to all of the source material, and I don't like to go yeah, on right. a podcast yeah. without having prepared. So right. I have subjected myself to, I think, a grand total of around four and a half hours of Odyssey. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do fucking bleeding Kansas on evangelical Christianity. <laughs> yeah, <and> just extirpate <laughs> it, Eric Prince. Well, you're gonna it, meet your fucking match. <laughs> <laughs> well, and especially because we we subjected you to those anti city dweller slurs last yeah, time, too, yeah, which true, must yeah, have been true. very offensive. For we wanted city to give you an like opportunity you. to build cities now. 
uh, <laughs> and make more sitters for yourself. I feel as though there's just, there's something about the civilization universe that you come out of it thinking like all of humanity is progressing in a positive direction that mm-hmm. long-term things are mm-hmm. going to be okay. And like, even if that's not the case, uh, you can still yeah. really kind of like warm your heart being like, yes, you see it did. There was this inspirational choir singing in Swahili and I, yes. I have manifested humanity's progression from first settling on a you know a river bend all the way to launching this fucked up space station. And <laughs> I just, yeah, genuinely there's something fun about it. There's something, there's something weird, all encompassing positive about it. So yeah, def- different than Odyssey for sure. Different and and I would argue better. Um, and, John and- Avery Whitaker, will you build a civilization that stands the test of time? We get the guy who played Wit on the show to just do the Sputnik noise. He's go beep, 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 beep. It'd be very interesting if Wit declared war on someone, and as he was destroying their city, and Civ Six said. Well, this is the start of the holiday season, not the arguing season, and then just murdered all of your troops. Uh, so we should probably start this by talking a little bit about the history of civilization itself, the game, the franchise. Yeah, well, so, you know, we had s- simulator games going back to like what Utopia in 1978, 79, something like that. And then Sid Meier's company, Microprose, was making a lot of varied sim- simulation games, right? So there was Pirates, with an exclamation point, which mm-hmm. was the first to to bear Sid Meier's name, I think. There was Railroad Tycoon. There were a lot of games that were, they weren't necessarily God games, Railroad Tycoon was, but they were like procedurally generated so that you could have sort of a new story every time, but you could play as like a single character in some of them. And then they decided just after after the success of Railroad Tycoon, which was a huge like explosion for them, right. um, civilization was their their next point. They thought, what if we applied this to like this idea of of human history and this very, very large scale game? First, it was going to be an RTS. That was the original build of this this thing. Oh, well, wow. then they, they they couldn't get it to work. Right. And slowly. And especially after discovering the board game Civilization, which was a British board game, and actually getting the the rights to use that name, they tried to go with another name. They just thought Civilization is good, so we'll use the pieces that we took from that and acknowledge them. There's another interesting piece to that as well, which is that um, the actual real-time mechanic that they were originally working with was actually kind of like SimCity, where the idea is that you would zone stuff and you would watch it grow over time. The problem was that just wasn't very fun. And, right, right. Um, and it was more fun to make active choices. Right. And there's a really great interview with Sid Meier that Ars Technica did, and we can link that in, mm. in the show notes, where he sort of talks about what this mechanic looked like and how it felt. And he even notes in that interview that Age of Empires, which would end up coming out yeah. in 97, sort mm. of was able to accomplish what they weren't able to do at that time due to the limitations of the technology in, right. you know, 1990. Right, like whatever. Age of Empires looks way better, right? right? It's just a time when computers could process a lot more graphically. And also it's just a uh, much smaller scale, right? Yeah. Age of Empires, you're not going to be building more than a couple of settlements, and it's right. just map by map and it's by not map turn by map. based and there's yeah, also an extent right. to which it's um if i remember correctly with age of empires like it kind of lends itself more to sort of in-game quest style things in the kind of like diablo vein mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to civilization where like you can have a theme in the same way that you can have civil in um sim city you could have themes of like fix this fucked up problem or whatever in kind of a mm-hmm. scenario but it's not the same as like a, like a like a literal almost like quest kind of thing yeah um, right 
And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I feel like you can feel that change in the civilization franchise as it goes from being hardcore, like board game turn-based to Mm -hmm. a still turn-based game, but one that uh, is far more kind of like incorporating the popular elements of games like uh, Age of Empires, which I also Mm -hmm. played uh, as a teenager. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Definitely like... Me too. At first, I was sort of like, what the fuck is this when Civ started doing it? But I actually think they've improved the franchise by having kind of conceded that a little Mm -hmm. bit. Absolutely. My uh, high school drama teacher was the test programmer on Age of Empires and really? got a cut of every game going forward. So he is a very wow, rich he's man. doing very wow. well. Yes. Wow. It's fascinating to see sort of the evolution of the Civ franchise, too, because I, I went back and played a little five in preparation for this. And it's amazing, mm. like in between installments, just like the vast technological le- leaps that happened, like literally every single time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too because I don't know if you've if you've ever played. I want to think it's called Civilization Revolutions, the one that was on um, iOS. Uh, yeah, the sort it, of streamlined one. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. interesting because that there's there, there's a, a weird kind of moment where even though PC games were already getting to the point where you could have way more advanced things like sound, video clips, stuff, like animations, mm-hmm. that it wouldn't have to be like because think about Age of Empires and like kind of how some of it had to be kind of formulaic and repetitive because there was just a limitation on uh, yeah. data on you know storage. It was runoff CD that kind of a thing. So like your priest always had to make that noise like I yo that fucking noise. Whereas like in in the older Civ games, you've got, or the newer Civ games rather, you've got like way more advanced things because it can be, you know, you've got stuff in every language and so on and right. so forth. Yeah. Civilization mm-hmm. Revolutions was interesting because it was limited on as a, as a like an early stage of like early days of apps being a thing on iOS had to. Yeah. So if you've ever played that, it has some of the most fucked up annoying voices because they they <laughs> wanted to make it seem like the real Civs franchise, but they couldn't, um, they didn't have the space for that. So right. they just made up gibberish noises that people talk and like, you know, oh, no. your, 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 oh, your, like your advisors pop up and they go, Tom, the and like oh, these weird horrible. noises. That's horrible. And anyone who's played that game will recognize the horror of like, oh shit, I didn't turn my phone on silent when like they're making these gibberish yeah. baby talk noises at me. And then the yeah. entire um, entire bus of people is just staring <laughs> yeah, at you. Yeah. I mean, oh, fucking 100%. I was riding a Bolt bus from New York to DC like in 2010 and that shit happened. People look at me like I was watching fucking Teletubbies on my phone. Like, genuinely. It soothes me. I... <laughs> I was dating a guy and the the topic of the civilization games came up and he was like, oh, yeah, I love Civ Rev. And I that was yeah, probably the it. first point where I realized this <laughs> wasn't going to turn Lord, out well. God damn it. You don't understand what you're fucking with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, after the original civilization came out and that was in 1991, it was a big hit. And it really I mean, Microprose at this point was. Yeah pretty well known for their sims largely their fights flight sims but and, also games like railroads and this really yeah, put that's them right because the they started with with just flight simulators mm-hmm. that was their big business and when they made civilization especially doing a turn-based game right that just was not hot right it was not mm-hmm. something that people said that they wanted at the time it was a turn-based game based on history like it sounded yeah. like it was just going to be an extremely like niche product Right. Yeah. Uh, and the like the next year, everything was a turn based strategy game. Right. Um, it changed the market like overnight. And it also co- sort of put the idea of 4X on the map. Explore, expand, exploit, exterminate. It, it's not just something where you are running around for the sake of like just doing exploration or just doing combat. It's taking all of these things and yeah. combining them into one game. That hadn't yeah. really been done before Civilization mm-hmm. in that way. And then after the original Civ, you know, there were a number of other games. Of course, they had to have sequels, and each sequel was better than the last. 
except for Civ Three, which fucking sucked. Really, I will die on this hill. Yeah, well, um, what happened? What happened with Civ Three? I don't. I don't know. I just don't like it. It doesn't feel good to me that mechanically. Was, that was the first game with borders. It was. Yes. And that's right. Yeah, Josh. Josh hates borders. I hate them. We know this. That's right. I, yeah. I, I, well, they're out of business now, so I think you won. <laughs> I prefer Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Civ Two in '96. There was Alpha Centauri, yeah. which was a sci-fi sort of Civ Two-like yeah. game in '99. Oh, right. And Civ Two. Civ Two. They took uh, a cue from the Doom playbook and allowed for uh, open modding mm-hmm. and everything like that. So they even released a pack of 20 scenarios, and I think half of those were. Uh, favorites from the net. It is kind of weird how modding can go in either way that you could wind up being these really niche advanced scenarios or like sci-fi things are really taken into a fully different direction on the engine mm-hmm. the way that like Doom or some of these other things like I'm thinking of uh, like even some of like the fan lore around Starcraft or it can be like ROM hacking mm. where it's just like we made Super Porno Brothers and it's original right. Mario but everyone's <laughs> naked like things along those lines it can really go one of two ways but it's gonna go hard one or the other I was reading the other day about something called TTP. This is a real thing in game development. TTP stands for time to penis. It's the (laughs) rough amount of time after a given game is released that some modder, some uh, uh, enterprising modder will find a way to put a dick in the game. (laughs) My brother is a little bit older than me and has had has an interesting up and down life. But he lived the dream of every kid in the late 80s, early 90s, which is my brother learned Japanese to the point where he is fluent in the language, lived in Japan for 10 years, was an electrical engineer and learned how to make his own Nintendo games. He worked in field programmable gate arrays, but specifically hardware engineering. He knows how to flash ROMs. He knows how to edit ROMs. He's done this. My brother Mm. is the kind of person that like he just alcohol doesn't go well with him. Guy from the Mm. Midwest. This is a thing. And um, oh, yeah. (laughs) One time he told me a story that he came home completely blackout, had no recollection of what happened the night before. But he uh, he had a huge bruise on his arm. He had a half eaten like peppermint brownie from Starbucks and he had bought an (laughs) NES game called Legacy of the Wizard. Um, And he had no recollection of this whatsoever. But also one summer living in West Lafayette, Indiana, he paid his entire rent by making counterfeit NES versions of Earthbound, which was originally made as an oh, NES game on. Uh-huh, anyway, so uh-huh. the guy who owned the one English translation at, for like the fan ROM community was like, okay, you can you can rip the, this ROM and you can share it online so people can play it and see it. My brother, being a fucking genius, found this and then found <laughs> the equivalent chipset you need to run that on. And so he'd buy like whatever bullshit Whoa. game that was, flash the ROM into that card, print out a fake label and said, I have the one copy of this. Yes. Sold on eBay. Yes. This is like nine times and he made, he made enough money doing this to pay his rent the whole summer he wasn't in school until the oh, guy wow. who owned the other the actual fucking physical copy the real one found out and started sending him death threats and he wound up having to move like Fuck. I'm, I'm not making this up this is in this is in 2001 no that's so much I, too specific of a story to be something no, of course. I, I just I know so much about the ROM modding fan community because of my brother um, yeah. and so like anytime I think about this stuff like the reason I never went down the rabbit hole and I was perfectly fine with just downloading whatever DLC they sold is it like I know how dark that fucking world can get <laughs> you and don't so, want to take that path because you don't know where it may lead yeah exactly yeah. and so and so civilization uh, civilization and, and games like it were I think I just was never so adventurous that I wanted to be like well maybe this fucking weird setup after 
weeks of messing with it, it'll work. I just wanted to play a game and have it work. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Civ, Civ, Civ's been, if I remember correctly, like, I want to say I remember seeing some of the mods for Civ 2, but I think it was 3 was, I think, the first one where you started seeing some of the, the scenarios set up. And then right. mm-hmm. it really, that really started happening with DLC with 4 and certainly yep. 5 and 6. Yeah, and this, the whole scenario thing that was, as we were saying before, it got its start with 2. And there were a few scenarios that were actually built into the game. And yeah. this is mm-hmm. one of the things that has ended up becoming a big part of the DNA of civilization is this idea of emergent storytelling through gameplay. I went on no cartridge actually with Trevor Strunk a very long time ago, back before I was good at podcasting and uh, <laughs> talked about this basic thing. The fact that like every time you play Civ, you are telling another story. Mm-hmm. Um, other games in the series, you know, we talked, we mentioned 2, Alpha Centauri 3, Civ 4 came out in 05, Civ 5 came out in 2010. Mm-hmm. There was Beyond Earth, which was basically an attempt to redo Alpha Centauri that came out in yeah, 2014. It, it wasn't very boy, well received. No, it's 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 not great. Um, <laughs> no. But then Civ 6 came out in 2016, which yeah. was the 25th anniversary of the release of the original Civilization. That's the game we're going to be talking first and foremost about today. Whether we're talking about original Civ all the way up to Civ 6 and its numerous expansions. When you think about civilization, what is the first memory that pops into your head? It's fall semester 1999. I'm a freshman in high school and we're staying up all night fucking playing Civ 2, basically mm-hmm. just doing <laughs> yeah. a, doing a, one of those like gang matches where everyone has to take their turn. So everyone has to have their time at the computer and no one wants to admit oh, yeah. they're too tired or bored of the game, but we just keep going. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, uh, my, my, my friend at the time, one of my buddies from the cross country team, we're still friends to this day, uh, lives, lives in Portland now, doesn't, doesn't game very much anymore, but we wound up going to the same university and he continued this habit and uh, played Civ 3 on his laptop and would have like you know, a months long game going where it's like it's like the year 4000 AD and he's nuked every other country and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He loved playing the game, like like really, really paying attention to developing it out into something. And so we have these these marathon sessions with it. Um, that was my first memory of it. I had played games like early PC games. Or I guess not early in the sense of when you think of how long PC games has been around, but yeah. um, early yeah. like 486 VGA games like Global Effect, mm-hmm. SimCity, SimCity 2000. Um, yeah. And then obviously, you know, I think Age of Empires, we just talked about that, and StarCraft Diablo really kind of changed that mechanism of how people assumed a game like a perspective uh, game was going to be played. Yeah. But I think Civ 2 the just bizarre things you could do and some things that I wish were still around like things where you could gift a unit to another civilization and they would like reverse engineer all the tech Mm -hmm. around it stuff like that Um, in the same way that I wish Civ 6 allowed you to culture bomb to expand your borders because that was fucking hilarious when you do that like there are things about Civ 2 that are very clunky um, replacing your roads with railroads is irritating as hell. Um, the fucking oh, your sucks, tank yeah. got killed by five spearmen is really irritating. Yep. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and in retrospect, yeah, you if you played it now, like unless you had the nostalgia value or you were really, really curious, it just wouldn't be that fun of a game to play because stuff is advanced. But to me, yeah, it's Carmel, Indiana, nineteen ninety nine. We've it's like seven in the morning and we're all fifteen years old and have stayed <laughs> up the entire night playing this fucking game, just you know, lying down on the floor of the futon when it's not your turn and then getting up and playing and just because my one friend is like, no, we are finishing this goddamn game. <laughs> um, one so more yeah, turn. That's, that's, and then for there on out, it just, it just held a kind of position in the, in the sort of canon of games that like I just sort of assume if, if, if I don't want to waste a ton of my time, I just shouldn't even get whatever right. installment has been released because yeah. I'm going to play it. 
<laughs> my yeah. my first memory was just seeing Civ Four in one of those Scholastic Book Order pamphlets. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And thinking, huh, I wonder what that's all about. It looks sort of like Age of Empires. And then a friend of mine had it, and he said, Oh yeah, no, it's not really like Age of Empires because it's turn based. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of boring. Maybe I won't really uh, give this a try. And then uh, <laughs> I didn't. And so Civ Five rolls around and a couple years into that being on the market, it was on Steam for like a weekend for free. Yeah. You know, sometimes oh, okay. they just have something up for 48 hours for free. And so I thought, well, I'll just play it over this weekend and see what what I think about it. And I was just like, this is the best thing I've ever played in my life. It's so good. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I immediately bought it and it became very important to me that year. Um, specifically, which we'll get into later. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because uh, I stayed away from Civ for so long because the buy-in was so high. Because once sure. you bought the like vanilla game, then there'd be three other expansions and they'd all be like $50 each. Like, it was, mm -hmm. it seemed like a thing that was just kind of out of my, you know, price range at the time. Um, and then well, and the I barrier got, to entry from a rule set perspective too, because each yeah. of those expansion introduces its own rules into the game too. So so yeah, a lot of barriers of entry. But then um, you know I booked my first regular like off Broadway job, and I had like uh, you know disposable income, and I was like, okay, I'll, why not? I'll throw this. I'll throw down some money for this. Well, and you had other people in that cast who were playing it too, right? Uh yes. Well, because I made them. Brian. Oh, uh, you, you were the first. I was, you were the first. I was okay. the first. Um, I put a lot of time into Civ 5 and then Civ 6 came out and I would say that Civ 6 is really where I uh, connected with the franchise. I've pay, played 745 hours of Civ 6. I've put in a lot, <laughs> a lot of time. Up. That's a, uh, I mean, that's kind of, it's a little misleading because what I would do is I would leave it on for the entirety of the show. And then every time I was off stage, I would do like two or three turns before running back on stage. Mm. So I wasn't actively playing it for 745 hours, but I've, I, I've gotten like about almost a hundred achievements on it. Like I, I've, I've put in the, the time and work and the thing that I think I've learned most by playing Civ 6 is that there is a certain level of difficulty in which civilization is fun and then there is a sharp drop-off point where <laughs> yes, it no sir. longer becomes fun. Yeah. Yes. I uh, I think I've played about 200 hours on Civ 6. Um, yeah. At one point when uh, I lived in New York, my wife and I were in a, a studio apartment. It was probably about 300 square feet. And oh, uh, I can yeah. never quite figure it out. So maybe I've told the story and I've said a different square footage. So if your fans are listening to the show, they're like, you motherfucker, you better get it right. <laughs> but we, we had one of those ductless mini split air conditioners, like the nice ones, the one you see, you typically see in, in, in Europe and Asia and stuff like that. Mm. And um, randomly, we just had one in this apartment in New York and it worked really well in the summer. It was like fucking incredible. But like I played Civ 6 so much one day, so fucking heavy duty with graphics card churning and everything on my mm -hmm. desktop uh -huh. that it generated enough heat that it overpowered the air conditioner. My wife had to be like, it's actually kind of hot in here. Can you stop fucking <laughs> gaming? Um, I, 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 I sometimes I play games seriously, Civ 6 seriously trying to actually like, you know, up the difficulty or do something to that effect, mm -hmm. uh, you know, actually go through it and just, you know, take, be deliberate. Don't just like all night play it or anything like be, be serious, trying to sort of like compete if you will. And other times it's just stupid. It's like, no, I want, I want to convert the entire English empire to Islam or something like that. Absolutely. Take screenshots <laughs> and be like adding Tommy Robinson and be like, look, yep. Bradford's Muslim. Now, yep. Yep. Shit. Yep. Like things along those lines. So it, it really just depends. But yeah, Civ six, 
I went in hard for four. I must, I think four and six are probably the ones I played the most. I did play Rev, which is stupid. And I, I got to the point where I could beat Rev on like the hardest difficulty when like you started the game and there were like 14 barbarians surrounding you. But um, when you beat Rev, is it just like a collective? It's just some stupid shit with some music and you know, everyone. Yeah. For me, it's very brief. It's one memory. I had this game. My grandpa had this game. On his computer, it came with, what? there was a whole book of CDs that came with his Sony Vio desktop computer that Hell he got yeah. in like 96. Wow. One of the games of Civilization, I was going through the discs. I was like, oh, these are probably just demo discs or something. Pop that uh-huh. sucker in. It was a whole ass <laughs> game. I was hooked. And I have a distinct memory of uh, one of the dialogue boxes saying something about disembarking and I didn't know what disembarking was so I asked my grandma to explain what it was and she was like wow this is a really advanced game for a seven year old to be playing so (laughs) that's my memory. There was a game called Caesar 2 I think it was a Sierra game it was like a turn based Rome strategy or simulator and my dad has never gamed in his life. He's not into games. It's not his thing. He, he, I think he, he had a very kind of like, call it dis, disinterest to disdain view of games. But he fucking mm. loved Civ 2, based on Caesar 2. And yeah. one time he read the manual and he's like, wow, this is really interesting. He sat down with a piece of notepaper and a ruler and started drawing out like what he thought the city would should be based on the stuff in the manual and then got on the computer. And my mom said that at like five in the morning, she thought she heard something. She got up and my dad was still on the computer playing. He's like, my city's going to shit. <laughs> he loves it. So anyone, anyone can have a game that's going to hook them one way or the other, even if you think you're immune. So if you don't want to lose 200 to 750 hours of your time, maybe don't play Civilization because if you connect with it, this will happen. You will convert the Babylonians to Zoroasterism or something along those lines. This Absolutely. Will happen. Just the, just that like lo-fi Garfield meme. You are not immune to forex games. <laughs> I, would, I I mean we'll get to religion a little later, but I I keep I would always name my religions things like uh oh. <laughs> well let, yeah let's let's dig right into it because you know I know we all played at least one game of this. Nate, did you play it all in prep for this or or not? Uh, recently, yeah, not not cool. not like immediately in prep for this, but I've I've over the past couple of months I've played. I, I learned that. In Civ Six, if you play as the Canadians, no one can declare war on you by surprise. Yeah. So fucking rules, because you can just basically have like one one guy as your military, and as long as you don't mess around, like nothing's gonna happen. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I I I've been I've been playing maybe maybe a bit too much. I Man, we don't have air conditioning in Britain, so maybe I've been fucking heating the house up a little more you know, as usual. I don't know about you guys. I I use the randomizer. I'd like to use the randomizer when I get started. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I rolled Mapuche uh, for my for my leader. The way he works is, I guess you have to try to play for governors. Like you try to get as many governors as you can, mm. uh, and then you mm. attack your enemies during either golden or heroic ages, which gives your troops a bonus for their effectiveness. So when your opponent is doing well, you can attack them and also do well. I was playing as John Curtis. Uh, I was playing as Australia. Oh, fuck Australia, and, dude. And I got drop bared by Gandhi in Portugal about <laughs> midway through because, um, okay, so Civ has this thing where it introduces an empire uh, that's like there to neg you for most mm-hmm. of the game and just to be like, well, you know, your people really don't have much culture, do they? And uh, for me, it was Byzantium this time. And okay. I decided I needed to exact revenge on Byzantium. Uh, for Dare calling me out, and uh, I was swiftly annihilated. Uh, so then I started a new game as Eleanor, 
uh, the English Eleanor of Aquitaine. Right, because she can be English or French in Civ Six. Yes, and I won so hard. I think I'd won by like the modern era because I set the difficulty down. Well, the the difficulty levels are funny because the the AIs are morons. Yes, they're they're never clever things. So the difficulty just creates really weird statistical problems. Yeah, the game cheats. When you go to the harder difficulties. That's what happens. The game cheats so that those enemies can do better, rather than having more intelligent enemies. I always do uh, continents, huge world, normal, standard speed. Uh, Right now I've been playing on Prince difficulty, um, which is challenging, but not impossible. It's a nice balance, yeah. And um, I feel like it was actually kind of a boring game because it just came to one of those things where like you're doing pretty well, but like you wind up not having enough land in the initial period before Mm. like borders harden up and then you just don't Mm -hmm. have the natural resources. So like you have to really go in hard on colonization or like make do with what you've got. But like invariably someone's going to be a dick and they're not going to trade coal or or oil or uranium or tin or niter or whatever you need. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've noticed too that'll happen, and this 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 didn't happen to me in this game, but it does happen uh, pretty regularly, is that it feels as though if you, on one hand, if you establish contact with every, every civilization in a game early on enough, someone's just going to develop a grudge for some fucking reason. The, the AI mm-hmm. is going to make mm-hmm. them declare war on you, do something stupid. And if you think yeah. to yourself, okay, well, I'm going to you know stay as big but also isolated as I can, and I'm, I'm going to like establish as much as I can of industry, extractive stuff, build the economy, like advance my science as quickly as possible. It doesn't matter because some fucking civilization is fully ancient aliens, and like they've already yes. developed the internet <laughs> in like yes. 2000 BC if you don't contact them. It's yep. like, I swear where it speeds up if you aren't contacting them and they they're like yeah. fully already like like building starports when you've built your first granary. Yep. And so yeah, 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 it yeah. Winds up, you get to a point where you're like, I'm not gonna win. So and it doesn't even I don't even care much about winning, but like it's gonna be annoying because I'll never catch up. And it's like 1300 AD. So I wind up stopping and wanting to play a different game. Yep. But I will say, if you're the Canadians as Wilfred Laurier, and if you can claim enough land to begin with, then you normally can do pretty well because no one will declare war on you. And so you can do a lot of things. Things like, yeah, just trade with everyone, do trade routes with everyone, and uh, become the 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 suzerain of enough um, city states that like right. you just wind up having a ton of money, and so that just kind of lets you do whatever. And and I mean, I think last time I got that far in a game, I didn't realize that if you don't flood proof for global warming, yeah, you can't reclaim the land even if you build it. Right. And so I wound up yeah. spending a ton of time building flood defenses, thinking they could then like Dutch style fucking drain the swamp, and they just didn't. So I yeah, I wasted like seventy turns. <laughs> basically like putting a no. fence around a flooded city um <laughs> that sucked but uh i think one of the most annoying things in the game is when you're you've got some other priority and some dickhead just randomly declares war on you or like has built yeah. some grand alliance it's, uh, it felt right. like in, in four it was always the babylonians um mm-hmm. oh maybe or, or the assyrians i can't remember what it was but uh in six it feels like invariably there's one or two that really, really will hate you if you don't have a strong enough military. I don't know if it works the same in six because I haven't played six as much as five. But one way in five that you could easily avoid war for a really long time is just never offer open borders in a trade. Yeah, that's true. Because yeah. that's how the other civ finds out that you don't have an army. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like if you keep yeah. your borders closed, they can't okay. explore your land sure. and see that you don't have any standing units. And so they won't declare war on you. One thing that I, that I would say, too, is that this was absolutely a technique in four. You can't do in six. And like, I'm, I'm very irritated oh, by yeah. it. Is it one of the mechanisms by which you can really be a dickhead in four? 
is if you ramp up culture production to the point where like you've got, yes. you know, academies, you've got performing arts stuff, you have things along those lines, you, you, right. you pick what your, your citizens jobs are going to be and you focus towards the arts, you'll get great artist points and thus you'll be granted great artists and not all, but most great artists. One of their options as a great person is to create a great work. And if you do that, like on a city that's got a shared border, especially if it's not a particularly big city with its own cultural influence, you basically steal all of their land because like the, yeah. the cultural right. influence blasts your border out. So you just yeah. go up and have, you know, fucking like, you know, Fyodor Dostoevsky write crime and punishment, like right <laughs> on your border and you fuck them out of all their minds, yep. all yep. of their, yep. like every improvement they've got. It's incredible. It is so much fun doing that. It's, it yeah. was as fun as, as headshotting someone in Team Fortress Classic with, or in Half-Life <laughs> with a crossbow in terms yeah. of like when you yes. finally get to do it, you're like, yes, you bitch, I've got you. And um, <laughs> yeah, you can't do that in six anymore. Like you can increase it. Great, great works do something, but they, I think they realized that was kind of a, that was, was kind OP. of a cheap shot and they took yeah. it out and it's like. Yesterday I tried to do a conquest run that I just got too bored. But before that I played as the Maori okay. and uh, they have a very interesting starting point. You know, usually you have That's a settler right. and then you you just found your city on the first turn. I don't I typically don't ever move my settler. I, I try to get mine um, to the coast sometimes just so I can get the the sailing bonus. Uh if it's like mm-hmm. a big map with a lot of water. But otherwise, yeah, you just kind of so, settle so down. Yeah, when when you play as coupe, you start with the sailing bonus because oh. Polynesian civilizations always point to the time that they arrive there by boat. So you start in the middle of the sea and then you have to move to find a plot wow. of land that you want That's to settle. So you have a couple of technologies yeah. already discovered, and also you get a bonus for not founding a city. Every turn, you gain, um, I think, science and a little bit of gold, I think, or huh. maybe faith, right. before you found the city. So I actually didn't found my my first settlement for 30 turns because I just sort of went around the ocean and found the the nicest place. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's, I got that. See, that's one of those things that's so cool. They've added because like it does like create this variety in terms of how the game experiences. So in the early game, and this is the case with Civ six, as much as it is with the other civs, you really are focusing first and foremost on the exploration component, right? Whether you are, like you were saying, Brian, you know, sailing around or in most cases, exploring the map using like scouts and warriors and stuff like that. Um, And I will say scouting in the early game still kicks so much ass. It's still so fun. And it's the thing that when Sid Meier in that interview I was talking about earlier, he's he he actually mentions that the the way that they explore the map and stuff like that uh, was inspired by a 1977 game called Empire. Empire. That's where that's where you get the whole concept of like walking around and exploring the 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 dark places on the map and like revealing that mm-hmm. terrain, and it provides like this in- dark place. That, that's exactly. also what what helps solidify the like yes this should be turn based mm-hmm. aspect of mm-hmm. Civ too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it creates this really remarkable feeling of like oh I am accomplishing something every time I reveal mm-hmm. new land I might find a goody hut I might find another civilization I might find a city state. I'm sorry, um, a goody hut. Yeah, the little the little tribal village. Uh, no, yeah, I just yeah. I, I had never heard yeah. them called Goody Huts before. Yeah, the Goody Huts. That that's that's like I saw Goody Hut with the devil. So <laughs> 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 now I'm imagining a production of of the Crucible where everyone is on Tatooine. Considering giant slugs. <laughs> More I've never, screens. I, 
I've never played Civ Six on the hardest difficulty because there was a time I can't remember which one. Maybe it was Rev or maybe it was Four that there is the possibility when you when you visit a goodie hut that it'll be hostile and just barbarians will pop yes, up. Yes, you get surrounded by happen? barbarians. Yeah. Does that happen? In, does that happen in Six still? No, or is that, no, I don't um, think so. Because, yeah, that was but, but, so fucking annoying. A yeah, very it didn't annoying. In five, either. In two, it's always yeah. You pop into a goodie hut and you're surrounded by archers and horsemen. The worst. Oh, what a Fuck nightmare! That shit. Come on, yeah. no. Yeah, it sucks. Thus making me realize after long and arduous work that there is no bonus to exploring goody huts with just an unprotected settler everywhere right. that you go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, that might not be the best course of action. <laughs> but I will say, like, the way that they balance that then in terms of risk or reward is that there's way more barbarian encampments, which are a different type yeah. of encampment from a goody hut. And the barbarians yeah. are very fucking aggressive in, uh, yes. in Civ Six. There's a lot of them and they move very quickly. And yes. it's all luck of the draw, too. Like, sometimes yeah. you'll be playing on Prince, and you'll just get, like, nine barbarian settlements that just, like, keep popping up all around you. And then sometimes, the one time I actually was able to beat Immortal uh, on Immortal mode, I just didn't... I lucked out, and there were no barbarians around me. So it really is sort of a luck of the draw about how difficult, like, the first couple turns is, depending right. on where you are. I, I want to take this moment to actually mm. ask a question, then, about... yeah. What the fuck is a barbarian, right? Like, it, 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 obviously, in a gameplay context... They're, they're German, Josh. Yeah, I, in, thank in, you. Uh, in two, if I remember correctly, I think, maybe it was four, sometimes the barbarians would found their own cities. I can't yeah, remember that, if, it was, if they captured one. It, if they, 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 they could cap a city, and then you'd and have a would, barbarian city, yeah. And it would be called... I remember, yeah. I remember when I was like, it would be called, like, Magyar. And I'm like, that's right, that's right. The Hungarians are fucking <laughs> barbarians, all right? right? I'm glad <laughs> you said it. But, but that's the question, right? It's like... The idea just of lost a, Hungary, everyone. We've just lost Hungary. <laughs> the idea of a barbarian implies that this is the opposite of something that is civilized, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And this sort of goes back to some of the, I think, inbuilt assumptions about what the world of civilization is, that we yeah. are moving forward in that there are these yeah. other people who aren't even really people. They're just barbarians who are stuck in the past. And I'm curious what you guys all sort of think about that. It's rough. It's a really rough element of the game, um, particularly in early Civ, where the diversity of leaders, it heavily skewed European, right? And yeah, it's it was it's it's always been like that t that that balancing act that Civ has been able to pull off um, at certain points better than others. I think nowadays uh, with the addition of more and more civilizations where with leaders of color, it starts getting a little less tenuous. But it really was like it, it, it kind of goes back into like the theme of like defeating the savage other in order to yeah. colonize and bring progress to that place, which is, you know, it was, you know, it's colonialism, the game, essentially. And it was for a really long time. Well, um, actually, that, that's a it's a different game that Sid Meier made. But it's um, actually called Colonization, but that's neither yes. here nor there. Oh, God, there's a game. What? There's a Sid game? Meier's Colonization, yeah. yeah. Which is you can also play. They made an expansion for four where you can play it in, in the four engine. I also think that Colonization, Wild. much like Pirates, has an exclamation point just to make it extra fun. I believe you're right. Yeah, it's actually very fun. But Civilization, regardless of like who it's going to include in it, is always going to be a game built around western concepts of history yeah right and the the barbarian thing especially like if you read herodotus or like other ancient 
Western historians, they always kind of start with like the the founding hero of whatever society. And they made their name by fighting off the barbarians. That that's sort of this repeated refrain that shows up in early history that, you know, just continues, especially once you get to the point of like transatlantic colonization um, that that becomes more prevalent. There, there actually was a mode in Civ five that was a continents mode where the continent on the other side of the planet would not be settled by a civilization so that you could scramble to try to colonize it and it would just have barbarians all over it by the time that you actually could reach it. That ended up happening to me in my game of Civ 6. We'll get to that later Mm. on, but... That happened to me in real life once. (laughs) Yeah, periodically in Civ 6, I've noticed this where it'll be like an Arctic territory or something like that, and it'll just be Mm -hmm. like all barbarians, and you see, yeah, it's not even really worth your while. Or they'll be protecting like one... You know, aluminum mine or something like that, right? Just yeah. All around it, they're like, there they might be barbarians, but they they fucking love handheld devices. Um, <laughs> sure do. I uh, I I was thinking about this too. That um, you know, living in England, where this was a Roman colony, and they they mm-hmm. they you know fought the barbarians. They built this famously built a big wall. Where they're like, yeah, we just don't want to fucking deal with anybody north of this. It's interesting because <laughs> when you think about the um, the sort of concept of civilization, the game where you know, you, for example, if you build a city and there's a barbarian encampment within the uh, adjoining squares of it that would normally form that city's territory when you have founded it, then it just destroys the barbarian camp on its mm-hmm. own. It just evaporates it and it's just sort of like, yep, land clear, you know, terra incognita, et cetera. Terra you Gullius. get 50 gold. Exactly. Um, where something that was interesting to me was last year I went to the city of Bath, which is uh, was a Roman city and is you know then a medieval mm-hmm. city and then a really famous like Georgian resort. I think it's the only naturally occurring like hot springs in the United Kingdom. Um, oh, yeah. And in the museum of the the Roman baths, there were these these Roman curse tablets that they had been preserved. Which, if you're not familiar with, basically you would go write everything to like fuck this specific guy. I hate him. To like to the guy who stole my shoes. You piece of shit. Right. And you would uh, you would oh, throw wow. it into the baths, and they're sort of like you know offering to the gods like, hey, will you please sort this complaint out for me? <laughs> and one of the things that was really fascinating to me was that the only, according to the museum, the only written example of British Celtic language to exist is this curse tablet that they found in which someone has used Roman like Latin script, but is not writing in Latin. They're writing in British Celtic to basically say, fuck this guy who stole my shoes, you know, fuck this guy who stole my (laughs) Druid potions or whatever. Um, (laughs) Which is to say that like, there's a lot more kind of like cultural mishmash happening, even in this kind of like, you know, for, for, forgive me for using the nerd term, but kind of liminal zone where like they've established an outpost, but there was never like a big city. It was just, it was, it was fully yeah. like the stage of a game of civilization where you have your city, but then there, there's a lot of unclaimed territory between you and there's just a road and shit, you know, yeah, yeah. great place for, to send, send a, a, a trade route to, to dig a road for you in yeah, six. Yeah. Um, there's more kind of intermingling stuff happening, which kind of puts, uh, challenge to this theory that all you have to do is, you know, build the city next to it and evaporate the barbarian camp and collect 50 gold and there's no more barbarians anymore. They just get absorbed. Right. Like, obviously there was, there's an absorption eventually, but like this country, for example, is, is uh, obviously still retains a lot of um, its sort of uh, 
Anglo-Saxon um, or pre-Anglo-Saxon, you know, fucking, I don't even know the names of the Roman Celtic tribes and things like that. But um, I, th- I, th- I think the point to that too, though, is that, yeah, it's not as if this is like the civilized group versus the uncivilized group. These are just two different cultures that are yep. coming up against yep. each other. Yeah, yeah. One thing that Six does is there is this setting where barbarians can become city-states. Yeah. Oh, so you yeah. also have these city-state entities, but you can you can check a little box, which I, I like to do because it can make them less annoying, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. where barbarians over the course of time can gain enough points to become a city-state. And you can also pay them money to leave you alone okay. or pay them money to give you a unit or pay them money to bother somebody else. Uh, which is yeah it's just a lot more interesting and then again they become a city state later so then they they have all of the uh, advantages that you have with any of the other city states that sounds a lot more fun and more interesting from a gameplay perspective than just random super aggro guys who attack everything they see so check that box next time you play I've never done that I was just thinking like the barbarians establish a city state and it just it has to come up with names of what a barbarian city state is (laughs) oh Salt Lake City wow that makes sense (laughs) (laughs) the barbarian settlements do all have their own names and they just sun dance sun dance when they become uh, a a city state they just use one of the names that's in the database that is not currently on your map but like while they're barbarians, they're like Wolf Clan or <laughs> Eel People or something. Uh, Wolf Clan was my Team Fortress Two clan name. Mm-hmm. You can tell too, like how much they acknowledge the thrill of exploring the map because mm-hmm. this entire game, Civ Six, is map themed. Yeah. So every time, so instead of like cloudy areas and dark areas, it's just you know blank parchment, and Here, then everything that you're. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. all of the yeah, there's like sea creatures and compasses on it, and then when you've discovered a place but you're not there, and it, it would usually be in darkness, it's now like hand drawn and it looks really nice. It does look nice. It does, I think, hurt the legibility of gameplay yes, a I bit. Agree. Um, I wish that they had huh. found something that was a bit less like the exact same color as the map. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But it is cool. So, yeah, after the ancient era, uh, we move into the classical era. And really what the game is trying to simulate here is this idea of like initial something resembling a society, right? People coming mm-hmm. together, forming some sort of a basic system of governments. I uh, started out doing pretty well, met the Mongols. Uh, we became a classical republic pretty quickly, discovered currency. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And yeah, this, this, is, this is the part in the game where we are introduced to the government system. And in yeah. Civ 6, the government system is a bit different in previous installments. In previous installments, you would, you would find a form of government, you would switch to that form of government, and it would generally give you like stat buffs and nerfs depending on the nature of the government. Whereas in Civ 6, a government gives you a series of slots and you can put policies into these slots in which slots are available is dependent on which government you choose. But it's not as if the government that you choose has the same sort of strong. uh, It doesn't it doesn't prescribe in the same way the choices that you need to make in gameplay. I always tend to go for autocracy at the beginning because I'm a big wonder guy and it gives you a 10 percent boost uh, to building you like your big world wonders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is it is always funny. I always feel bad about using the fascism one. Like if I'm if I'm if I'm playing as like a war mongering like or at least a civilization that has a lot of buffs to like military stuff. Fascism is kind of the way to go because it boosts all your units. I don't ever feel good about it. I'm not. 
I, I don't I it, it doesn't feel good to have four of those bars, but you know what? When I'm when I'm nuking Canada, it <laughs> right. uh, if feels a little bit better is what I'll say. Yeah. Because I came from five, five being my my first game, and then I played four, and then I played six, and I never played four all that much. I get so paralyzed by just the fucking sheer volume of cards to pick from. Yeah, they should have yeah, a way to sort of just, like root it out. It glosses like the over, and it's just like I I can't keep track of all of that shit, and I I know I'm definitely not doing the best thing. What they were trying to avoid in six was in five, people figured out how to optimize everything. Yeah. To the point where you just like no matter what victory you go for there, there were like these mantras that people followed that it's like, you know, rush this technology first, um, do this branch on the policy tree, because in five, you just have these permanent policies that you choose. Right. Yeah. Um, And once you hit it, it's just there for the rest of the game. And then, you know, you've not only locked in that policy, you've kind of locked in that tree because you get a big bonus for finishing each specific tree. That's right. So you don't want to just mix and match as much as possible. So what they again, what they're what they're really going for is making you make choices rather than writing it out. Yeah. And I personally kind of like to ride more things. out. There's yeah. already so many choices in this game. So, I, yeah, I think that there's sort of a, a paradox of choice here where, like, like you were saying, Brian, there's so Hold many on, Josh. options. They make other 4X games. That's that's really funny, Brian. I get it. Yeah. Paradox. <laughs> that never have been able to get into, like, Europa Universalis or whatever. Anyway. Me neither. Too, too complicated. I think I think, Nate, that you you were you had sort of something to say, too, about, like, the way that policies work in this game. Right. Well, I would say with Civ 6, I agree the idea that you find yourself in a situation where you like policy overload and there are certain ones yeah. you kind of want. Like I, I appreciate Classical Republic because the additional trade routes, but you know, yeah. certain yeah. things like, what is it? God King, uh, you know, plus gold and faith in your capital. When you have one city, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. When yeah, you yeah. have other things like it can make sense. But I feel like to me, I always wind up orienting myself towards more money from trade routes, more accessibility to trade routes, and yep. um, more money from city states because yeah. I just feel like the yeah. method, the method that I've always had since I started playing this game, you know, what twenty three years ago, has yeah. been like you always want to have as much money as possible to be able to buy improvements or to buy units because it just can be a lifesaver if things get, you know, go really really haywire. And so I, I also suffer from the sort of policy overload as regards stuff in the classical era like monuments by comparison, something I find interesting is that, you know, there was always a race, for example, in Civ 3 and Civ 4 to get the Great Library because once you yep. get the Great Library, like if I think it was if two or three other civilizations had discovered a technology, you automatically gained that technology. So yeah, it's sort yeah, of yeah. like, mm-hmm. that was like a hard kind of gate for you was get, get that. I don't think you have that uh, advantage in 6. Also, as far as policies and governments go, I, I would be remiss if I did not note that I find it very interesting in six when you have the initial sort of I think they call it like chiefdom is the first government mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah and you have like what looks like a statue of a kind of like a human figure like looks like an Olmec or a, a Mayan statue something to that effect mm-hmm. in four when you start out your government is barbarism and it looks like an illustration <laughs> from a dickens book of a guy like swilling beer and fucking ripping meat off of a leg but he's dressed in like like victorian clothes or or, or you know georgian awesome. clothes it's bizarre like it always seems so hilariously out of place but also funny i do think that there's a little more self-seriousness and that comes through like 
in both the artwork and both the like kind of aesthetic, but also in the fact that you kind of like de-gamify some of those things. Like this one yeah. wonder mm. basically fucks everyone over, so you want to yeah. get it first. Things like that. Six doesn't yeah. have as many of those. Yeah. I do think that the the overwhelming choice of policies though can be like sometimes it's just sort of. I click through because I'm like, fuck, I'm just happy with what I've got. I don't care. I'm the same way with governors, too, where it's just yeah. like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good luck. I think the other <laughs> thing that makes Wonders a bit different than Six is the fact that you have to select which plot they go on to, and some Wonders yeah. have adjacency yeah. bonuses. You're exactly right, though, Nate, that like, in the earlier Civ games, especially, it's the Pyramids and it's the Great Library. Those yes. are the yeah. two. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas wonders are a bit different mechanically here and it is actually somewhat viable to go for a strat where you don't build wonders in six, which is interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, just yeah, yeah. error bonus at this point. I mean, there's some things that gives you advantages, but like if you're trying to lock in things so you don't have a dark age, uh, right. if people haven't played the game before, yeah. or you haven't played six. One of the things that's interesting is that you have error score and you have to at least maintain a certain, it's like certain accomplishments, certain discoveries, certain, uh, breakthrough moments. What does they call Eureka moments? Um, right. Yeah. Discovery yeah. natural wonder, or even just like building the first of something. Yes. So it's like the mm-hmm. first time you meet a city state or the first time yeah. you build a certain district. So it's like tries to, to keep you, the world. Yeah. Yeah, keep exactly. you to play like rounded. Yeah. And so you, if you get more than if you, there's, there's basically a cutoff threshold to avoid a dark age. And then there's a a second one to get a, um, to get a golden age. And then if you have a dark age and then you get a golden age after that in in the next era, then you get a heroic age and And heroic age. Yes. All these advantages you can possibly have, but that changes up the calculus as regards wonders. It's no longer like get these one or two things and you can absolutely fuck over all the other players. It's more like don't fall behind. But then also you can run out of space because in, if I remember correctly, in four, certainly mm. in two and three, wonders were all built in your city center. So you had right, an unlimited yeah. number of right. wonders, whereas now you both have wonders that can only be built in certain eras, but also like they have to be on a suitable land tile and you can right. run out of land and right. a wonder yeah. takes up one of them. So fully there's an extent to which civilization has like gotten you know, like like a Botox injection of Settlers of Catan. Like that's yes. yeah, a yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's changed everything <laughs> down to like the hexagonal tiles. How was that for you discovering, like going to six from having played four in the past and being like, what the fuck? There's a hex now. My buddy <laughs> was tiles playing are different. five in his barracks room in Korea, I remember. And I was like, what the fuck? Mm. Like what is this Settlers of Catan? Like what's happening here? And I realized, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah they had just changed it up. And I, I was sort of like, I was kind of a purist about it. I was kind of like, I don't really yeah. know if I can tolerate this. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I just, I, 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 I believe that we were a proper strategy game. It was called Civilization <laughs> we, Four. We, exactly. We used to be a we proper to, country. Exactly. I and, think what uh, really fucked me up was when I fired up Open Civ again recently. Open Civ is like an open source basically creating the ultimate version of civilization two in that Whoa. uses hexes by default now. No. I was like, oh, hell oh, fucking no. 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 there is one wonder though that happens in the classical age that yeah. if you don't get it on certain game modes, you are kind of fucked. And that is Stonehenge mm. because Stonehenge gets you a free great profit. And that means you can found a religion. You know, faith was a pretty big part of five. It is a massive part of six. It it is probably the most important non-military, like moving stuff around the board components of this game. So I know I know why faith got introduced in five. So the director of Civ Six is also the director said you had to have it. Got to have faith, the faith, the faith. Let's have a moment of silence for that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. 
so the director of Civ 6 is the same director as the Civ 5 expansions. Um, so Ed Beach came in and the, the main reason that religion was introduced was they wanted to give you more opportunities to sort of change things up, right? More opportunities to make choices. So you have different bonuses that come from religion and religion by its nature comes later in the game. Right. Um, so that way you can be like, oh, you know, I was kind of I was focusing on war early on, but now I actually want to pivot. Right. And be more diplomatic or be more scientific or something like that. So by introducing the religion mechanic, you have these bonuses that come from people following your religion. It's still kind of light, especially in Civ five. It's still just a a little. It's a garnish. Unnecessary. Yeah. Um, It's not something super important. And so they they really beefed it up here in six. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's even a victory. Right. You can get a religious victory. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about our religion becomes the world's religion. You know, so it was was uh oh your religion this in your playthrough. AJ, tell me more about uh oh and its fundamental Um, tenets. uh, Yes. I mean, I also I get uh oh is I'm very proud of. But I also, you know, (laughs) I love it when the entire world starts uh, following the religion of dildos, Uh, (laughs) like, you know, varying things. I mean, the ability to name things in this game is wonderful. It's surprisingly complex in this. You have the prophet, which found it's the religion, but then you also have apostles, which can add like different um, tenets to your religion that give you certain bonuses. And then you just have regular missionaries, which are basically like your ground forces. You can have warrior monks that fight battles for you, which is just absolutely wonderful. You have you have two forms of warfare. So you can avoid going to war with someone and just have a religious war where it's just your religious units um, shooting lightning at each other. They call this theological combat, which I think is actually really funny. (laughs) Yeah, you beef it up by becoming a good Um, good debater. My my closest neighbor when I was playing this last time was Wilhelmina of the Dutch. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so she just was constantly trying to Protestantize me. (laughs) I I, I always choose one of the religions that just is like one of the it's just like an animal symbol. Yeah. And I'll just call it the lion religion. Yeah. Because I'm a very boring man. (laughs) In four, I used to always choose Judaism. Sometimes I do in six, but more often than not, I just choose the crab symbol and I make it crab dance. And, yeah, uh, that's, yes. that's the religion, you know. That, like, that's that's what I did this playthrough as well. Um, Siddhartha Gautama was my was my prophet, uh, and he founded the religion of Crabtown ladies. They sing this song, Duda, Duda. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because one thing that you can do also, um, whether part of me feels like I'm being racist against myself when I do this, that you can make it so there's tithes in religion. That's one of the, the things you can pick oh, as one of the tenets of religion. That's a really, that's so, imp- mm-hmm. a huge yeah. power if you play so it So basically right. you, you get, get so a much certain money. amount of gold per turn for every adherent to your faith. And so uh, when yeah. I play and I, I conquer the world for Judaism and also everyone has to pay me for every Jew in the city that they've got was part of this like yeah ha, ha, fucking gotcha but then a part of me is like um uh the russians actually wrote this great big book about why this is a bad thing and uh, <laughs> so, yeah there's an extent to which i um I, I feel a little bit i feel a little bit conflicted about that but yeah the tithes in general is very very helpful in the sense that you know if you have religion and particularly a dominant religion and particularly if you're on a continent where you're none of your neighbors get get head up about you um converting their cities because some places will fully yeah. like, like 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 cause a diplomatic incident with you right. if you do, but if they don't, yeah, then it can be like great. The Dutch, know, like, the Dutch do that. Oh, they're awful. The Japanese do that too. They really don't like when you go and you evangelize within their yeah. borders. It'll the change. Dutch get mad when you evangelize even once, and they just flood you with missionaries. Yep. 
So the rancid you, little fucking carrot growing people. Oh, this <laughs> is real life. This is not. This is not in the game. This is real oh, life. Yeah, but in the game they do that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like damn. All, all of a sudden, every I, I I didn't look at that icon. I was too busy, and every single one of my cities has been converted to Zvarta Pete. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Well, we just want to spread civilization. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> And there's certain golden age bonuses too that you can buy uh, civilians with faith yeah, as well. That's what I do all the time. Wait, so I buy my traders and my workers. You can yeah. traders, workers, and settlers all with faith. Yeah, in oh, certain eras, it rules. There's also like you can, depending on the tenants that you set up for your faith, you can also make it so that you can buy certain buildings, certain districts, things right. like that yeah. with faith sure. as well. I remember which can be very you can powerful. Buy, like you could literally buy like uh, campuses or not campus, but like yeah. any. Any district you wanted on faith, but only yeah. during Golden Age, yeah. You can yeah. theoretically buy just about anything. It's just about, again, making a choice as to what that faith can do for you. But I think this yeah. is a really fun example of rather than being super literal about it, they've just taken a concept and built yeah. a gameplay mechanic that exists for the purpose of fun rather yes. than being like, well, how did religion really work? Because like. You know, it, it, it you can you can take it and you could try to create something that abstracts the role of religion in day to day life, but it wouldn't be fucking fun. And, and there's no. no inherent bonus to any particular religion. Exactly. Like if That's you choose crucial. Judaism or Islam or the crab religion, crab, crab dance or crab town ladies or uh -oh. whatever you want to call it, <laughs> <laughs> there is no. Uh, there's nothing built into that the right. same way that there's something built into playing as a German or playing as. Uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine or something like that. Yeah. It's just you choose a symbol and then you're able to choose your 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 benefits after that. I feel like there's something about civilization where I try to be good. I try to be like a good, mm. just ruler for yes. a while. And then when I start to lose, <laughs> I turn into a tyrant. I turn into like a mad mad tyrant or honestly if i get bored and i'm too far ahead i just i go full militaristic is that something that happens with y'all too or am i like an uh, absolute sociopath i am an absolute pacifist until someone fucking declares war on me and then i make tank yeah. armies and i fucking destroy them like i'm like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah until my my government forces me to accept a peace treaty from these people i'm like i will take i will leave one of your cities as a joke otherwise like i i feel bad <laughs> eliminating an enemy civilization i always do but i'll fully <laughs> tank army just just rampage through that shit and get that, so all yeah, of a sudden yeah. like you go from being a civilization with you know like eight cities or nine cities i feel like eight is about where you need to be to get the bonuses of having yep. eight of something in in different cities yeah so you want to be mm -hmm. about that size but all suddenly like oh yeah it's like the, the, these dickheads tried to like declare a quick cheeky war to steal one of my settlers and now i have 41 cities because i've taken all of theirs <laughs> like yeah. the one like that that's kind of how i play but i i've never declare surprise war um i think in revolution i would sometimes de declare surprise war to steal someone's settler but like that's harder to do in in six because they mm -hmm. don't yeah. really they aren't as stupid about leaving settlers exposed yeah. it's just a settler yeah, yeah, such yeah. a if you're not or the barbarians the game, take it, them yeah. yeah yeah and well that can be nice too when the barbarians have taken and a bunch you of other take them from the barbarians shit, you take yeah. Them back. yeah yeah right yeah Barbarians basically you get to, to work out all of your militaristic impulses. But um <laughs> no, nah, I just build cities, build archers, build walls, do the defenses, etc. Stuff I need to do. Always very defensive. Build naval yeah. units mostly to explore, and then obviously you get some era yeah. bonuses for doing certain things. Um but yeah, if someone if someone obviously like you don't want to be so far behind on military units that you can't catch up if you have to in in the event right. of being attacked. But yeah. 
basically, I I never I never declare surprise war. But if someone, and I always refuse offers from other civilizations to go into alliances against people to declare, declare war. But if someone does it to me, that I'm just like, bro, I'm making you into a city state. <laughs> I I think that for me, it's sort of dependent on what happens during the early game. Like I identify sort of who my potential rivals may be, particularly yeah. if they really start encroaching on my side of the map. Um, and, and that's actually exactly what I did in this game uh, once I got to the medieval era. Yeah. Because once you get to the medieval era, um, then what you can do with the military starts to get interesting, particularly yeah. when you ha- when you get knights. Um, once, mm-hmm. once you have knights, that really starts to open the game up. And, and for me, what happened during the medieval era is... Um, I entered an heroic age and, uh, barbarians wiped my Northwestern city off the face of the map. Oh no. Um, and my Southwestern city was under, not he- so heroic now, are you? Josh? <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, in my Southwestern city came under heavy loyalty pressure from nearby Ottomans. And mm, so I, that happens in the Southwest. It certainly does. And so I, I just went ahead and decided to, you know, show the Turks. I decided to give them what for basically. <laughs> Um, and so I set up a military campus near the border of Istanbul and just started pumping out high level knights, uh, and, uh, and, and crossbowmen and basically just fucking, I also had like two city states that were near Istanbul. And so I declared surprise war on them. Moved in with my knights and crossbowmen, laid siege to the city and, you know, fucking wrecked Suleiman's shit. A really important thing you can do in this game, too, is levy a city state's army. Yes. Uh, yes. Which I just did yesterday in my in my conquest attempt where I, I, I went to war and I had some units, but I, I wasn't not enough. But I had this one city state right next to their border that had a ton of units and was basically single handedly. Uh, I was able to use that army to take all of uh all of greece oh wow it it can always be interesting with city states because like they'll just randomly have 18 advanced units like some of them will have like (laughs) one archer forever but some of them will have like it's like wait you have you have modern anti-tank armor yeah it's like like, it's like 1300 (laughs) and they have tanks yeah yeah 100 and so yeah levying them is 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 amazing um and that can be helpful too because i think sometimes you know, depending on how hardcore you want to retool your economy towards going to fight a war, it can be useful where if you can levy a city, city state's military and your own units to just sort of do a defensive thing and just kill every one of their units that crosses into your territory. Mm-hmm. Because like the AI is stupid, but it's not so stupid that it won't eventually give up after it has to go at yeah. least 10 turns. But if you yeah. just basically kill the shit out of everything that they put at you and leave them alone, like if it's an inconvenient time for you to go steamroll them, then uh, or you just, you know, technologically you can't, you can't compete, then like that can be a great way to like not have to spend the next 30 turns repairing literally everything yeah. and, you know, yeah, yeah, sessions. Yeah. yeah. What did you think heading into six and seeing how much the war mechanic changed? It's weird because I saw that change happen in four. There was a big update to four a couple of years into it. Like I want to hmm. say in like Oh five or Oh six, they did a big update where you downloaded it. And like it did things like, for example, giving you your probabilities of how well you might fight. Oh yeah. Like, uh, oh, yeah. they changed okay. the animations in it too. And so I was already kind of prepared for that, but like, I appreciate that 
in the olden <laughs> days, because that's something that I think a lot of people, if they haven't played this game or they've only played the newer ones, might not realize is that you didn't really get any information on probability or any like what your chances were. You had to kind of keep track of, of right. the unit strength. Yeah. And once again, in Civ 2, you had that stupid fucking conundrum where like, oh, a, a, spear, a Zulu spearman has killed your tank. Yeah. Like that yeah. would happen. Yeah. That doesn't really as happen As long as you now. got city walls up, that's going to happen. That like, continued all the way through Vanilla 5 because it used to be that units had 10 hit points and every hit had to take away one hit point. And right. then they just for the updates changed it to 100 hit points so that way a, a, a low level prehistoric unit couldn't really do anything but right. AJ just because you don't know everything up through Civ 4 you could stack your armies yes. oh. so you had these what did they call them it was just like the unit of doom or something yeah, stack like of that doom. I think it's stack of doom stack of doom stack of doom where you'd have like 20 units in one single space. On one <laughs> tile. Yeah. And generally it was legions. Legions were really good for this in the mid game yeah. in two. Yeah. You would create a stack of 20 legions and just advance on Rome or whatever. Uh, that <laughs> so like amazing. cities, cities didn't have their own defenses in yeah, Civ 4 that's a, that's or the a, earlier a ones. That's a very important improvement. So I if think. there wasn't mm. a unit garrisoned in the city, oh, you could just walk right straight in. into yeah. it. No matter how modern it was, no matter how, how advanced that civilization was you could just walk right in and then if not you just had two stacks of doom constantly fighting against each other which also hurt legibility you didn't really know what you were up against when you started to go to war with something right um because it could just it could be a couple units or it could be an entire army in a single space well and again the the ai cheats right so particularly in two closer to the end of the game you know, you can still build things that will increase the ability of the units garrisoned in your town to hmm. defend. So, like, you yeah. can build city walls, you can build uh, a, a shore defense, that sort of thing. But it's not the city itself defending. It's the units in the yeah. city and it grants yeah. them a boost. So in the late game, yeah, you would you would have plenty of, you know, troops in your own city. But it didn't matter because the AI could, you know, just spawn like 10 stealth bombers and just send all of them at you <laughs> Jesus, from anywhere yes. on the map. Oh. Yeah, I would say that the reach of some of the advanced units, they scaled it back a little bit. And that makes it still fun when you get into the point where yeah. you've got nuclear weapons or, you know, long range bombers, things to that effect. Because in the olden game, it was just like... Yeah, it was it was just stupid the level of power you have. I do find it very funny now when because of those mechanics with the hit points and the relative strength based on, you know, the class of unit and, you know, the stack you have cuz you can stack up to 3 units now. Um Yeah, right. Yeah. Is mm. but it uh, turns stack. them into one unit and that's an important Correct. distinction. Like you can create a core yeah. or an army, but it combines the units together into one. But yeah. It is very funny when you have like yeah, like a, a modern armor army and just like someone attacks you with yeah like a crossbowman and it's just like immediate death like that, yeah. that that is there something fulfilling about that like when like someone comes at you with with you know you've got i don't know fucking like one of the one of one of the higher end at units or something along those lines and then someone someone's coming at you with like a musket man or a knight and it's just like <laughs> yeah. just, you know immediate death like that 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 mm-hmm. makes it at least feel as though there's a reason to continually update your military units and mm-hmm. right. know, kind of like strategize along those lines because I mean, I'm not going to say like it's not like turn bait or it's not like it's not like real time stuff. It's not like Starcraft, like your Zerg Russian yeah, yeah, people yeah. and shit. Right. But there's an extent to which you can at least like you play it more in a sort of actiony way versus like chess. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the early game, it felt like early games, it felt like you just had to basically have like an array of people in places because 
you know, you didn't really know how many units one of their units or stacks was going to get through. Right. Um, yeah, 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 very, yeah, yeah. And you could really game some, like, just like the thing I was talking about with great artist fucking super expanding your borders yeah. with Culture Bomb. There were ways you could yeah. kind of game the, the the blind spots of the mechanics to, yeah, to, to, to be an idiot. It was fun, but it was also really stupid. Yeah, like Zerg <laughs> Rushing in StarCraft, you know, basically like, it's annoying because it works. There is nothing I think more satisfying for me in a game than getting the stealth bomber and destroying city walls like they're like Swiss cheese. But I also feel like early game like war conflict isn't as fun for me as when you actually have the, the goodies yeah. and stuff from later eras. It it especially like before you get planes because these char- because your your units can't stack early on either. Mm-hmm. They're all next to each other. You can find yourself in these situations where, like, you can't lose, but you also can't quite take the city. Yeah. Yeah, it's just irritating. It's just endless yeah, grinding. Yeah, so you yeah. just spend a lot of time. You have these ranged units, and the, and the, their range gets reduced by certain environmental factors I've never quite been able to um, wrap my head around. Sure, sure, sure. And so you just kind of sit, sit yeah. on this city for Turn after turn after turn after turn. After and then turn when you get finally it, finally you fucking get it. And then when you get it, you have to keep its loyalty up because it's yes. constantly trying to go back to its other civilization. So you have to assign like a governor to it. And sometimes that's not even enough. And, and policy cards and things like that. Yeah. So you can always take a city by force and occupy mm. it and get that loyalty. But what if there was a different way, a nonviolent way, a more mm. diplomatic solution? We'll find out after the break. Ooh, yeah! What up, shape fans? The literal devil here. You ever look at shapes? Like you look at a triangle but get way too horned? Or you look at a square like a little bitch? Or you look at a pentagon but are like, Ooh, more side, please! Then hexagons are for you, you dirty little side slut. Hexagons go all the ways. North, south, and the other four. You might be like, but the literal devil, what about heptagons? Fuck you. You draw a seven-sided figure. I fucking dare you. People keep drawing me pentagrams thinking that'll get my attention, but the literal mark of the beast is 666, not 555. What am I? A telephone number on Everybody Loves Raymond? More like everybody fucks the devil. It's like nobody listens, you know? So embrace the only figure you can finger and slurp those sweet polygonal juices like the nasty little shape fucker you are. Hexagons, oops, all sides. We finished up the medieval era at this point and we are moving now on firmly into the Renaissance. Um, the Renaissance. That's right. You will, Brian, which I won't. I will. I'm going to call it the Renaissance. A lot of times by the Renaissance period, you want to already like have, you, you want the Renaissance to be kicking in in like 900 AD if you're going to be like actually winning it. And like, yeah, I was just, I was, I was more or less on track, but that's way behind. You know what I mean? On track for human civilization, <laughs> way behind in the game of yeah, civilization. Yeah. Do you yeah. go into the game knowing what kind of victory you're going to try and get or is it more about like feeling it out as your civilization develops i think for me it's a little bit of column a and a little bit of column b but Mm. a lot of the victory condition that i at least initially tried to push for 
is based on what the unique abilities and units yeah. are of the civilization and leader I am playing as. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's it's usually like, oh, this this person can do these things, so I'm going to focus on getting money, or I'm going to focus on building culture. Or yesterday when I tried to just go for a conquest game, I just straight up chose uh, Alexander of Macedon. Yeah. And and went that way. But usually I, I I play like Josh, where I just kind of put it on the randomizer and see and if it's someone new who I haven't played as before. I keep playing and then just try to play to that strength however I can. When you play as the Mapuche, when you attack an enemy while they are in the middle of a golden or heroic age, you get a major fucking boost, especially oh, if their city is close to your city. And mm, so yeah. for me here, this was an excellent moment because the moment that we entered the Renaissance, Suleiman got yeah. a golden age. I had my troops ready to go because I had been massing them during the medieval era. And <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, again, yeah. I was just able to send all these knights and crossbowmen across the border and just fucking wreck their shit with a helpful assist from the Mexico City Musket Brigade. I almost always go for space race victory, I think, just because of the fact that if you're pushing really hard for an industrial economy and keeping ahead on tech, that's probably mm-hmm. your best bet. You can kind of play mm-hmm. diplomatic while you're at it. And if you're not a mm-hmm. dickhead and like the kind of the AI works in your favor, then you, sometimes that can work. Regardless of how stacked your civilization is at a given point in time in terms of your economy, your science, etc., the diplomacy in this game is <laughs> always a challenge. And in yeah. Vanilla Civ 6, it's completely inscrutable. Like, yeah. you will you will not know what is going on. And all of a sudden, like, you're, you've been doing your whole own yeah. thing the whole game. And all of a sudden, everybody denounces you at once, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. It's just bizarre. Th- this is a problem in, in 5 as well. Like, they, they never, I, I think Civ 6 now it has it like really clear lines for like what someone doesn't like about you. They have agendas that you can take a look at, Mm -hmm. you know, they have these, um, uh, you piss them off points. And then there are also like these, these diplomatic points, right? So diplomacy in Civ five is all about really just having money and paying off city States as much as possible. And then incorporating spies once the time comes. And so in six, it, uh, who can explain diplomacy? I can't. Because I can't. Can you, AJ? It can you it's Nate? pretty inscrutable, but here's here's basically the gist <laughs> of it. You get diplomacy points when you win things at the UN. Because there's diplomacy points in terms of the the points of that that win you the game. Yes, the but diplomacy. But then there's method. also th- these little podiums that you get. And those are how you vote on things. Right. It's right. like you spend your little podiums. And that's mostly like kind of trade, but no one ever wants to trade them. Right. And then there's Um, also basically basically a a, a victory track that exists in the game where if you get to 20 diplomacy points, you win the game immediately. So the original Civ, right, you win the game by either killing everyone or going to space. Space. By the time we get to five, there are diplomatic victories as well. Mm -hmm. And a diplomatic victory in Vanilla 5 was just the UN comes around once you get to the modern era and then you hope to get enough votes from your city-states to become leader of the world via the UN. Um, which just means you spend a lot of money at your city-states. And that's how the world when, works, too. Everybody <laughs> knows that the UN is the most important governing body in the world. Right. Yes, this of is, course. We, we, all, we, we saw Thief in the Night. That's what it's about. That's um, right, so, Brian. So then they were like, well, this... this 
this is terrible. This really sucks. So in the uh, expansions to five, what they did was they came up with a world congress that that appears in the Renaissance. It appears even earlier in Civ six. Yeah, it appears almost um, immediately in Civ six. It's always very funny. Yeah, it's just sort of like, wow, yeah. we're having the world congress when we haven't met any of the other civilizations and we haven't discovered <laughs> writing yet. A little tooltip yeah. pops up. There's that lady being like, you may go to the world congress now. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, I don't know how to tell you this. I think that only happened in your game. I no, have no idea lady. what you're talking about. Yeah, no, no. The lady who appeared to be on your my screen and said, hello, yeah, yeah. Josh Borman. That's you, Josh. Yeah, this is, come this to is the Congress. Congress. Come on no, now. No, you know you, what I'm you, talking you, you, about. You, you think, Enemy cities have gathered yeah. strength. Like that, yeah. that person. Yeah, yeah that yeah, lady. Yeah. She, the lady who pronounces envoy is envoy. We have another envoy. <laughs> oh, um, right. So I turned them off. Like, neighbors have made a request of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, canonically, oh, she's really the good. wife of Sean Bean. Yes. In the, in the Civ <laughs> oh, 6 that's, that's lore. Right. There's like There's weirdly lore. specific lore. Yes, and, and she versions so of Sean her. Bean is like a Cloud Atlas guy mm-hmm. who's died many times over that's throughout right. history. And, 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 and his various wives at various points throughout the game who are all that lady. If you watch the trailer for Civ 6, She's yeah. the one who ends up saving the yeah. world at the end of the game. She goes to space. So the diplomatic victory in five in in uh, Gods and Kings and, and really in Brave New World becomes more about dirty tricks because now you have spies. So you can right. you can right. initiate a coup in a city state. Um, one thing you can do is that if you have a very aggressive world leader on the map that's wiped out another civilization, Go to war with them, capture one of those cities from the civ that they wiped out, and, give and back. bring them back to life. Right, because then they're your zombie thrall, and right. they will do everything. Which is for honestly you really that. cool. That's a fun mechanic. Uh-huh. The last dirty trick that you do is that you secure your city states with enough money and everything right before you're about to get to the UN vote, and then you just declare war on everyone else. So that way your city states are also at war with them and they can't buy influence from them anymore. Um, So there's actually like a lot of like tricky things that they figured out how to do. And then for six, I think they tried to make it trickier and it's incomprehensible to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I appreciate the fact that you can use diplomatic favor to purchase concessions from people because in the past, for example, you were always kind of hitting up against a wall where, for example, if you were to say don't proselytize to my city. You know, they'll just be like, fuck you. And your right. option is to declare <laughs> war or not. Uh, yeah. Whereas yeah. now you can basically get them to make promises. You can, if they ask you to like, don't settle close to my borders and you fulfill it for 10 turns or how many turns it is, you don't, uh, you, you, you gain some diplomatic favor that way. I yeah. appreciate yeah. that in terms of the way you have your, because you have your stupid AI driven diplomacy <laughs> things for trade and things along those lines and like yeah it's not great but it's less annoying in six than it was in any of the other previous games where you just mm-hmm. hope that the ai was stupid and would make a mistake and be like yes here i'll give you i don't know fucking <laughs> one copper in the year 2000 and you'll give me literally like every technology yes. i haven't discovered yet um yeah. <laughs> i don't think you can trade technologies no. in six uh-uh. which you could in the previous one in six diplomacy is more complex than ever yeah. but that's not necessarily a good thing Whereas I think, you know, we talked about faith earlier and with faith, it's just you have your apostles and missionaries run around. They proselytize on behalf of Crabtown ladies. That gets you a fun (laughs) bonus. And also so much Stephen Foster in this game. (laughs) And then every once in a while, you also just get to fight another, you know, uh, evangelist. And that's kind of fun. This happens, I think, at such an abstract level. And and Mm -hmm. the layer is so abstract that to me personally, it just didn't feel fun and I was mm. confused by it. But Nate, did you have a thought about that? Two things. Number one, 
I think the reason for that is that faith is generated based on how much you accrue from the things that you're doing in your civilization, the Mm -hmm. units that you have, the uh, structures Mm -hmm. that you have, things along those lines. Um, And so it's entirely like a point system, things you're accruing yourself and you're able to spend however you want and you can deploy in in Mm -hmm. certain advantage periods, you can deploy it for even more stuff. It doesn't really depend on the AI in any way. And right. I think this is the right. one thing we've talked about a little bit. What we probably should address is there's a unifying principle throughout the entire history of the franchise. The AI fucking sucks. It's yes. really it's so stupid. Bad. It's incomprehensible. Yeah. Like you cannot get it to do things even when it would be advantageous to the other players, unless you are at, it puts you and just you, the human player at such a disadvantage that it's not worth it. Like yeah, trading yeah. a precious commodity, even when like you have something they need and they, no one else has it. They won't trade with you just because they're like, no, fuck you. I have all the aluminum in the world. Deal with it. And they don't trade it with right. anyone. So there's not really any value to them because it's a finite amount they can use. Um, right. And so I feel like, in terms of trade, in terms of, of, of agreements, in terms of whether they'll accept something along the lines of an alliance, a research alliance, open borders, exchanging things along those lines, like uh, it's just like randomly they'll just know, you'll have great cordial relationships with yeah. a civilization the entire time and you cannot build an embassy. They say, fuck you. No, you just can't. Mm-hmm. I won't let you. <laughs> yeah. It makes yeah. no sense at all. And I no. feel like faith, because it's a thing where it's something that you accumulate on your own and you you dispose of or you deploy as you see fit and it can let you kind of strategize certain advantages is a lot easier than like, well, hopefully when I put in this random fucking Stone Age ass World Congress that maybe I'll get this advantage or maybe I won't. There's no way of knowing and there's no way of yeah. really strategizing yes. besides completely blasting all of your diplomatic favor on something when really it's just sort of like, oh yeah, this shit again, I don't care about it. Yeah. And yeah. every time the World Congress vote rolls around, you're like, I have to fucking do this shit again? God damn yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. Well, and five, the way that it worked in the expansions for five is that the World Congress was like, we're going to have a vote in 10 turns. It's going to be on this thing that's proposed by the top dog. Right, so you can propose something, and then you spend turns plying favor for it, mm-hmm. right? You right. either get people to vote for the thing you've proposed or vote against the thing that someone else proposed that might hurt you. Yeah. Um, here, you just vote completely blind. Like, the, the thing is proposed to you, and you vote on it, and maybe other people did too, but who knows? Yeah, there's no way to tell which way any civilization is going to vote on a thing, yeah. so right. really you just spam as much as you can into the thing you want and hope that that's going to be enough, but then sometimes like, if somebody has, if one of the civs has like a diplomatic favor that's like in the, you know, triple quadruple digits, then all of a sudden you're looking at like uh, you're like you're like, well, I put in twelve votes for this, so surely it's gonna go. And then it's like nineteen votes to twelve, and <laughs> exactly. it's like, well, what the fuck? <laughs> sure, uh, it's even better when it's just like an unmet player, and it's like, all right, thanks, unmet player, have a fucking great <laughs> <big> time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just voting with like a man literally sitting in the shadows, going, yeah. no. Surely, surely, <laughs> on a very practical level, you would meet them at the Congress, right? You would think, yeah. right? But I want to move on now into the industrial era, um, because yeah. this is Let's where the skies. That's Let's right. Go. That's right. Let's get Kenneth Branagh dressed up like Isambard Kingdom Brunel and have him liplessly smile at things 
uh, just like in the 2012 London Olympics. Okay, um, that's for me. <laughs> no, I get it. I mean, I absolutely get it. I mean, like you know, let's let's have Danny Boyle be like, hell yeah, we're literally uprooting every fucking bit of civilization to make people work in this dog shit factory. This is, it's making yeah. something we never know what it does. It's like it, you know what I really really think is a great cornerstone of our nation's history is we used to breathe in smoke that you could chew and like yeah. everyone did it, and now we're not a proper country anymore. It's, no, it's such a great scene because Brand is like first of all he does that tempest speech where he's like this beautiful island everything is green and then they just strip all of the sod and like astroturf off of the field it's just black is this and there's like glowing red lines and it's but it's like it's a good thing it's cool actually this is all this was all part of the 2012 olympics opening ceremony the, the opening is that what ceremony. we're talking yeah. about here yeah danny boyle is no Zhang Yimou. mama Sorry. mia well the thing you got to remember about it too is that this was sort of like like the actual Francis Fukuyama last man in the end of history mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. for British centrist liberals and 2012 is the era they must you know return with a V to despite <laughs> the <time laughs> for, like blocks away mere blocks away from the Olympic uh, facilities in Stratford they were just like mass arresting people right like it actually fucked oh, that part of uh, northeast London quite quite badly yeah. um, you know everything about the Olympics is weird it's just sort of like this um as a, as a sidebar comment here, like it's very funny because yeah, when you think about the industrial era, there are two countries in the world that really, really completely fucking changed from how they were before in, in that initial period. I mean, obviously all countries did, but in terms Mm -hmm. of just like countries that went from, from like, you know, the village green fucking cottages to like fully like everyone lives on top of each other in like a city just called tuberculosis. Like (laughs) they are the United Kingdom would newly formed of England and Scotland and Switzerland randomly because Switzerland Mm. was one of the, the, it went from basically like, yeah, like, like yodeling cottage to like the place where literally everyone (laughs) is sewing and making fucking textiles. Um, in that period, I mean, obviously, every other country changed eventually. But the the point I'm making in saying well, and is the in United like, States of America, of course, don't don't forget, of course, yeah, America that's number true. one, you know, it did yep. exactly. You know, it's like we have we 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 we've always been on the bleeding edge of different kinds of indentured servitude, and that right. era was no different. But the thing I would say mm-hmm. is. Um, Something I appreciate about civilization, especially uh, Gathering Storm, the the downloadable content expansion Mm -hmm. pack for six, is that it actually it kind of foregrounds the in the long term world environmental implications of this Mm -hmm. era uh, from the very beginning. Um, And this is the point where like it actually matters because you have to have factories to be able to have enough industrial output to be able to make these units without it taking you a hundred turns. You have to have eventually at a certain point, you have to have electricity, which means in the early part, you either go without electricity the entire time you get balls lucky and you have fucking hydropower or you use coal power and you massively over pollute uh, your CO2 budget. And you know, you start like sea levels start rising and deserts start expanding and things like that. I appreciate that that's included in it because in previous iterations of this game, it was just like, no, fucking everyone's got a factory and a nuclear power plant and right. a coal power plant and an oil power plant. Just like, <laughs> there's no such thing as Going air. all at once, they're right next to each other. Yeah, exactly. Like, we don't breathe. And I think, I think you know, there was actually a global warming, warming mechanic in Civ 2. It didn't really, really do very much. Yeah. Um, interesting. It just yeah. didn't exist. fucked with things. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Um, but wow. I guess this is a good opportunity maybe to get in a little bit to the climate change mechanics of the game that, again, mm. you don't see their full effect until later on. 
But this is yeah. the point at which you start to make trade-offs between, as you were saying, Nate, do I use fossil fuels and fuck the long-term future, or do I try to do sustainable development, which then ends up putting me far, far, far behind the curve and fucks me over completely. Those are your choices. And, and it's also very yeah. funny is that at a certain point in the in gathering storm, you can actually use your industrial output to do direct air capture and remove CO2 from the, right. from the atmosphere. Which is and, completely yeah. a fantasy, but they had and to put it in. Lower, it's real. It's real, Josh. It's very I've funny that you can lower the globe's temperature, but it doesn't reverse any of the damage that's been done. So yeah. like, yeah. I actually just, as a, for shits and giggles, I've done my entire economy on direct air capture long enough to like lower lower the temperature like well below like we're basically create an ice age but i cannot <laughs> get my fucking sunken netherlands back like it just I, it won't ever happen but you know what, what? there's what a I, wonderful wall there nate you built a yeah. wonderful wall there's definitely a pillar well, says ozymandias etc <laughs> one of the things that you you see when you're settling places right and if you're near a coast it's it gives you little numerical values for like how many levels the sea will rise right does, does the ice at the north and south of the map actually melt? Yes. At all? Yes. yes. It yes. does. So, you, you can, fully so there are can areas like that become passable. The, yeah, it becomes passable. Yeah. And also okay. all of the barbarian units that were trapped behind ice uh, all yeah. of a sudden are unleashed upon the world. <laughs> um, we're not prepared for that happening by 2030. No, that's one of those unknown unknowns is the ice <laughs> the barbarians I, the that ice will be unleashed from the Svalbard yeah. vault. <laughs> <laughs> Carrying battleships and stealth bombers. The, the, the crew of the terror f slowly thaws and takes over the world. Yeah, I feel like people would take the Paris Accords a little more seriously or the Paris Agreement if they knew that if we don't correspond with it, then the 13th warrior is going to happen to us. In the <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the question I guess I have here is, you know, they tried to gamify climate change here in yeah, a way that mm -hmm. sort of aligns with what our current understanding is, plus adding the fantasy element of, you know, fucking carbon capture and mm. being like, yeah, this is definitely a real thing that will happen. So yeah. as to preserve what I think is civilization's fundamental optimism about the future of the species. Yeah, right. But my question is, is this real like what does this say about the world and does this actually align with where we're going does this fundamental optimism track with reality at all there are things about this mechanic that i really really like uh one of them is that to build the flood barriers you can't just buy them with money like you actually have to invest cities time into doing it and yeah. like the inherent message of you know we actually have to put in the work if we're going to reverse this thing and there still will be catastrophic damage no matter what we do but there are ways that we can go about like mitigating that damage, I think is a very good message. But, you know, again, with with taking the carbon out of the air, that's just not it's just not scientifically yeah. going to happen in time. Uh, well, and I think, if ever. The, you know, the major thing with uh, climate change being a feature of this game is that it shows up at the time of the game where you have to win. Yeah. Other parts of the game you kind of coast through and you develop and you build and you can, you know, hang out. But the last the modern era, you are trying to win. Yeah. So the the social response that happens to climate change is, well, how do I use this to win? Mm. And so it turns out if you're trying to win um, the world, you have to do horrible, terrifying, inhumane things. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's not really like a message in that game for the good way 
to handle the realities of climate change. There's just shore up your resources, leave the planet, right. you know, shit like that. Well, you know, it's, in a way, it's like this game's been around for, you know, over 25 years now, almost thir- yeah. more than 30 years. More than 30, actually. yeah. 91. Yeah. Millions and millions of people have played it. That is to suggest that any one of those random guys on Twitter offering to suck off Elon Musk thinks that maybe <laughs> you can win a fucking space race victory and then none of this climate change stuff will actually matter. Yeah. Like, it'll genuinely just be, hey, you know what? Game's over. We won. You got ranked. You're like, actually, I'm a, I'm like kind of like a like mid-tier ruler, you know, like I would say you're sort of like Ethelred the Unready or something along those lines, yeah. right. but it'll be done as opposed to, I mean, you can look at examples in human history of, of you know, civilizations, city states, things along those lines yeah. where it just became untenable. And it's like, yeah, that's something that's interesting to me is that I, the game hasn't yet gotten to that point. Like you can obviously have stuff, fuck your civilization so bad that you lose a lot of your capacity. If you're like super coastal, you know, it can, it can really damage things, things like that. Right. But I think the idea of sort of like, there's always that space between, you know, like, when you get into the modern era and you're just, you know, future tech 25 or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, future yeah. civic 25, like, like yeah. so- social media cubed or whatever the fuck it's going to be. Uh, it was sure. very funny to me because I was, you know, this thing, future tech and all that shit was happening in civilization four. And it's funny because there are new ones that have been added since the franchise is continued. Yeah. Social media yeah, is one right. of them. And it's like, yeah, it's like, damn, it's, I, I thought the future civic was going to be fucking cooler than Facebook. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can see that incorporating kind of keeping, keeping track, but like there's always that space like, oh yeah, in the future, future tech, like whatever, it'll just be, you know, one, one big fucking refrigerator that'll cool the ocean or something. Who knows? Yep. Yeah. But like, one big right. battery this- that charges up the entire planet. Yeah. I, I hope that there's a mod for like the science tech somewhere in the steam workshop. That's just, um, NFTs. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> but, but the, every, final, the final frontier is just bored apes. Yeah, exactly. But, but every uh, every policy actually makes everything in the game actively worse and harder. Yeah, right. It's, right. it's, it's right. a climate change. Say, yeah, it's a world wonder to develop the blockchain. Nothing changes except your CO2 budget just goes fucking through the roof. But that's, that's the thing that is interesting to me. Um, you know, it, like we joke about that, but there's no... At the end of Civilization... If you don't score a true victory through science, through whatever, the points are going to be tallied and whoever has the most points is going to win the game. There is no world in civilization in which everybody loses. Right. Um, And that Mm. is um, fundamentally those things feel in tension with each other to me. The idea that, Yeah. yeah, we want to address the idea of climate change, but at the same time, this is still a zero sum game in which one civilization will win and the other civilizations will lose. I think that those are fundamentally incompatible and I get that it's a game, but I still think that's kind of interesting. Well, and that's that's part of the thing is, yeah, about civilization, about the fact that it's a game in its purest form, right? It's like a board game, Yeah, right? It's not like a game in that like uh, Dark Souls is a game, right? It's like it's it's free form. It is about like playing something. It's not about the rise and fall of civilizations. It's about the rise and rise and, and rise and rise and rise. And so it, somewhat inadvertently but somewhat intentionally becomes this sort of positivist Steven Pinker uh, Francis Fuki I mean it came out a year before the end of history came out oh Um, wow there's actually a really good video that was made a number of years ago now by uh, Yaz Minsky on YouTube sort of a a not very large YouTube account but they're very good and 
their video about Alpha Centauri kind of talks about those contradictions and Great how video. Alpha Centauri, you know, these people are all going to another planet. And while they're still on the ship, they start breaking off into different ideological factions because their material reality has changed so significantly from life on Earth. I mean, there's a part of me that that that, that wonders sometimes because you think about the changes that need to be made and you think about uh, when I mean, when I say need to be made, I mean, for the game to correspond to the present moment, when you think about yeah. it, it's sort of what it saw as the end of history or the terminal point where everything else is just sci-fi in 1992 versus, you know, mm-hmm. 2005 versus now. And, you know, I think about this, that like in democracy was the terminal point. It was, it was fascism, communism, democracy was the terminal point yeah. where nothing further could advance in four. Now yep. in six, you have, what is it like digital democracy, corporate autocracy, I think is one of them. Uh, and I, uh, there's something else I can like, like, like pop popular, like populist totalitarian, something along those lines. But basically they're all kind of like luxury gay space communism. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like <laughs> shitty derivations of yeah. the previous things. And yeah. those weren't definitely weren't in and they had to be added. And it sort of thinks you think to yourself like, okay, in civilization seven is like, it's going to be like, you know, it, are you going to have to factor into like, uh, you know, societal disintegration or, you know, factor like, like deglobalization, degrowth, the COVID pan- right. COVID-19 pandemic, a yeah. nuclear armed walking battle tank called metal gear. Like what are the things <laughs> they're going to have to include? Because like, that's gear. the reality we live in. But also like you can see that notion of, 1992 post cold war it's going to be this from here on out because nothing else can be possible kind of changing but not changing in a way that kind of expands horizons it just sort of envisions that you can have that but have it also be bad and getting worse and that to me i think is one of those like um i remember this very clearly for my job i one time had to record a session with a client and they were speaking with jonathan Sachs, who was the former chief rabbi of Mm. the uk and he talked about what he did in his free time in this interview. And here's this very incredibly storied, incredibly, you know, like highly regarded, uh, you know, Jewish community leader, scholar, religious scholar. Mm. And he said he loved reading Stephen Pinker's books. He thought he's just so brilliant. And inventive. Oh boy. Now we did it maybe a week before I did that. We had done an episode of trash future where we had read Stephen Pinker's books. Now Stephen Pinker uh, hypothesizes that in the future we can mitigate climate change by creating what he describes as autonomous cloud ships that would fly around the oh, world endlessly powered by solar power or some other yep. future, future tech 27. And they would seed <laughs> clouds to mitigate climate change. And you're sort of like, yo, what the fuck do you guys think this guy guy like has anything useful to say but right. you realize like that oh yeah things are gonna work out fine positivist yeah. kind of wig wig interpretation of history that everything is forward progress no matter what and like no matter what mm-hmm. like it's going to be resolved because technology always arrives in the nick of time i feel as though civilization the civilization franchise is very much kind of grounded in that domain yeah and yeah, it's right. a fun game to play. It's a really fun game to play, but mm-hmm. it really does have a, you know, for lack of a better term, an extremely 1992-ass vision of the world yes. at its yeah. core. Mm-hmm. Well, and Pinker loves to, like, trot out this this hilarious chart that's democracy versus autocracy over time from 1800 to 2010. And so it's just like, here's how much democracy there is in, in numbers, Right. So like in 1800, there's negative eight democracy. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like it's like the fucking chart in civilization. Your final score where it's like the bar goes up. Like, oh, my God. In in 2010, there's currently four democracy. Okay. 
Um, that is literally like, one step removed from like you claim to be downwardly mobile, but you will consume a hundred percent more cool ranch Doritos than any media. <laughs> that, that one guy so like, who was like the, on Twitter, who was like, "We must return to a traditional agricultural society." Yeah. His very next post was, "I can't find any cool ranch Doritos." Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's so the like middle of the twentieth century, of course, is just a wreck. We're 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 just below zero for autocracy, but you know what we're trying to do is hit the great heights of democracy that we hit the peak of it was 1920 how many democracy were there at was that when time? the world was free and there was <laughs> there was there was a uh, like three and a half democracy oh, yeah, okay. at that point okay we got the right? so like we we didn't reach that point again until like 1992 sure and then it shot even higher. Everyone got so free in the 90s. Maybe that's the reason for the popularity of the Peaky Blinders undercut. It wasn't that people thought Killian Murphy was hot <laughs> and they wanted to look mm. like him. It was like, they're like, no, 1920 was absolutely the peak of human civilization. And like, I want to demonstrate my dedication to bringing that back. I'm mm. going to score every like period movie by how much democracy number there was in it <laughs> <laughs> and then model my life off And of when that. it's really fucking good, you start singing Baba Yeah Do Yeah Do. Going back to, you know, original Civ and sort of the underlying assumptions of that game, the fact yeah. that the two win conditions are complete and total military domination or you do enough science to go out into space and propagate the species further you know, that that also speaks to um, that the understanding of what the world was at that time, because at that point for the United States, it looked like both of those were the things that we were going to do. We had basically yeah, already right. accomplished yeah. a domination victory mm -hmm. and now we were on our way to space race. We are all pretty close in age. I'm, I'm 37. Mm -hmm. And I think for younger listeners, it would be hard to overstate the weird deranged optimism that existed in the 90s about the sort yeah. of... I mean, like, I think that Fukuyama's analysis is, is far less simplistic than the title of his book, and I think the title of the book is, yeah, is, right, is, yeah. is, 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 is truncated, so it's not just the end of history. But I think the extent to which you can look at the disintegration of former Eastern Bloc countries, the, like, ethnic cleansing, genocide around the developing world, you can look right. at the just e economic vandalism done to Russia... And all throughout that era, despite the fact that there was so much obvious human misery taking place, there was this really, really strange sort of like in the future, you know, things are going to be even better than they are. Everything's getting better. We're all going to listen to techno. Like there's just this, this <laughs> feeling of optimism at that time. And yeah. I don't I don't want to say and, and, and that thus civilization is, is, is you know, is has taken root in poisoned soil because that's where it's from. But like I feel as though that notion of endless progress that comes from an era and I feel like a game now that tries to retrace human civilization and, and show a progression I feel as though is going to be like have more in common with Disco Elysium than with this this yeah. is just like a legacy product in a way because I feel as though not everyone I mean you realize like not everyone and most people still you know by and large like are like in terms of political sensibilities about these things aren't necessarily all that not as, as cynical but or even not even spending that much energy on it but mm, I do yeah. think that a lot, a lot of that kind of discourse has just been disabused of this notion that like, yep, it's all going to work out great, guys. No, no problems. Yeah. We're solid. Yeah. No, no real point. We don't even need to track years anymore because like there's no need for years. Like we're good. We're just going to, we're just going to have future tech <laughs> from here on out. Yep. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, it hasn't worked that way. Generally speaking in the game, once you are hitting like 
somewhere between the atomic to information era. This is the point at which victory starts to happen. If you've been playing aggressively, yeah. I thought Civilization Four was the pinnacle of the model, and I skipped five. Obviously, I was yeah. not mentally or emotionally prepared for. In Civiliz- Civilization Six, you have a touring rock band that plays concerts that makes everyone Muslim. <laughs> and yes. That is, yes, that to yes. me yes. is genuinely. I was like, wow, I, y'all have gone fucking far with this. This Absolutely. is actually really cool. I, I, this is the, the end of history. The rock band mechanic is amazing. <laughs> the rock Panic. That could be a game in and of itself. Yes. Well, we haven't talked about culture much, about a cultural. We victory. should talk yeah. about culture uh, a bit because that leads very naturally into the rock band and stuff like that. Yeah, there's so cultural victory. I think was introduced in five, right? Could you not uh, do culture d- victory in four? Bef- was there a culture victory in four? I don't think there I didn't was. Play but I enough remember. four. Okay, so five had this really awful cultural victory in vanilla. It was yeah, just you. You get a bunch of culture points. And once you get enough points on the meter, then you build the culture wonder. Doesn't even have like a, a picture or anything. It's just like you you just put production in one city towards something and then you get it. Oh, that's it's the twenty twelve London Olympics opening ceremony. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. That's right. And you win it's just the game. Kenneth Branagh's face. Mr. Bean shows up. Hat. It's awesome. Uh, Be not afeard. The aisle is full of noises. Sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. You know, that, that also got a revamp in, in the expansions to five where a cultural victory, they introduced tourism and that you have great artists again uh, and they create great works of art. And it's a really fun thing because you mm-hmm. get to see these cool paintings. You get to see like old, like ancient songs that can be composed. And you can also use those uh, composers to do concerts and other civilizations. Mm-hmm. So then you're you're playing this kind of difficult to read, but you can sort of get the hang of it. Numbers game yep. of how to influence other civilizations and they've basically just carried this over one to one from Civ 5. I think the interesting thing about culture in 6 is that in many ways I feel Mm. that this is the system that is closest to the way that the world actually works Mm. where as you develop a more and more culturally prominent uh, empire and especially when you get the rock bands and start to take them yeah. on the road uh, yeah. and use that to evangelize on the behalf of Crabtown ladies. Um, yeah. You know, that that really is, you know, you can see examples of this, obviously, with South Korea, with the How You Wave. You can see examples of that with like Beatlemania. I mean, rock mm-hmm. bands genuinely are one of the strongest cultural forces ever created. Yeah. It's so funny they can fail in this game, too. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, you get and bad then that reviews. It sounds and, different. Yeah. yeah, I was just gonna say I wanted to spend a moment to talk about the music in this game. Mm. Uh, in addition, you know, just because we're talking oh, about rock so bands, um, not just Christopher Tin's a second great opening theme after his his Bobby Yetu in, in Civ Four, and this is a uh, of course a longtime composer for this series, Jeff Knorr and uh, Roland Rizzo, Griffin Cohen, and Phil Boucher, who all provide these these really clever motifs in this game so before you always had like a song representing a civilization and then a few others peppered in to to give more you know to fill out your 20 hours that you're going to be playing through a game um here each civilization and i don't think they have the war themes this time so in five you had a a war Mm. variation of your theme as well oh wow here you have one for each era 
So if yeah. you play as Australia, of course, you're going to get fucking waltzing Matilda stuck in your head for the rest of your life. Uh-huh. For America, and they use this in all of their promos, they had Stephen Foster's Hard Times Come Again No More, a truly beautiful song. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they all have different arrangements. And again, this is kind of playing to this idea of, of history as a thing that always moves forward. They yeah. start very simple. So Hard Times Come Again No More is just like a plucked banjo and a fiddle I think at the beginning yeah and then by the end you have like electronic remixes of everything although it, it doesn't quite go full techno which is unfortunate no no <laughs> to no. your point earlier Nate like it should Six, all seven. be techno that's the end yeah. of history the end of yeah. history is that you, you have a hot European girlfriend or boyfriend who looks like either Franca Patente or Moritz Bleibtreu in Run, Run, Run. Like That's that, right. That is the future. Like when you achieve that, then civilization has topped itself. And it's just like they didn't quite go far enough. Uh, no, I, I would say, too, I remember in four similar like motifs for eras. I remember a lot of harpsichords in the I think in the Renaissance period. I remember mm, uh-huh, some uh-huh. fiddle music, things along those lines. I think there was a piece called like Funeral March, like when a civilization has been eliminated mm-hmm. and like, it would play and things yeah. on those lines. But I find the music is a little it's less repetitive to the point where like I typically listen to other music or to podcasts when I play this game. But yeah. if you don't, right. if you choose to listen to the music, I feel like it is quite good at this point. And it's it's always been OK, but it's gotten a lot better as this sort of like kind of engrossing thing. I think the sound design for one of the things that I was that was really interesting in the sound design was that when you zoom all the way to like super macro view, you hear like like what sound like yeah, winds, really cool. like high altitude. Yeah. And when you zoom in really yeah. close, you can hear like clanging hammers mm-hmm. Like work happening in the city, things like that. So there is a kind of like engrossing feeling to it. Um, And I I do think that they've taken advantage of a lot of the sort of technological developments. I think that like the um, the wonders when you when you complete Mm -hmm. a wonder in Civ Six, you get this sort of high speed animation, like stop motion style animation of it being time lapsed, of it being constructed from foundations upward and things along those lines. Um, whereas I remember there being some kind of like CGI ish sort of animations for them in four. Like I remember there was like a world sort of jukebox with uh, Leonard Nimoy, very distractedly yeah. voicing the <laughs> lyrics to the Velvet Underground <laughs> rock and roll. Um, but now it's, there is like, yeah, that kind of like a more, uh, multimedia kind of feeling to it. And it's, um, they've done a lot of work on it. Yeah. With five, there was this increased seriousness, right? Like it, right. yeah. Civ one is very silly. It's so the silly. Way it plays when you discover up. a new tech, Sid Meier is the one letting you know that you did it. He's <laughs> yeah. standing right there in they a have fucking him, like, toga. dressed up as an ancient Greek. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and like they have pictures of like ancient Rome, but it's like a they have like a, a stadium billboard where it's like yeah. Lion Six, Christian Zero. It's all or very whatever. silly. And, it, and they brought mm-hmm. back some of that whimsy I felt, which I yeah. like. And so so with four you know, Leonard Nimoy, they got a big celebrity voice to read Bible verses and and historical quotes mm-hmm. and quote Sputnik and say beep, 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 beep. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they didn't put it in his contract to get him back for the the uh, expansion. So it's just Sid Meier doing the voices for the expanded stuff. Oh, wow. But then with five, they're like, no, we're going to be very serious. Everything's right. going to be kind of watercolory and realistic. And yeah. we're going to have hexes now. And all of these quotes are going to be delivered by William Morgan Shepard of Gargoyles and Mad Men, and uh, mm-hmm. he was in the original Broadway cast of Marat Saad. He is 
I, 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 he's my favorite out of all. Sean Bean is great, but yeah. like William Morgan Shepard and his just like, oh, great Hiawatha. Yeah, yeah, Will yeah, yeah, you yeah, once yeah. again? Just like, oh, yes. Tell yeah. me more. <laughs> tell me more about what I'm experiencing in this world. And there is something so beautiful, though, about Sean Bean going, beep. Beep. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> AJ, what did you think about sort of the, the aesthetics of this game, I guess? Oh, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. You know, as you said, Brian, I started out with 5-2, and it is sort of like a watercolor painting. There's a lot of chiaroscuro, yeah. and it feels mm-hmm. very sort of, um, it feels like a Renaissance painting that, you know, yeah. you're starting out for the entire And like when you complete a wonder, you get sort of a painted picture of the wonder rather than the, the in-game right. model. Yeah, and it's beautiful, Um, but there is sort of a wackiness to 6 that, I think harkens back to the series roots mm-hmm. in a really fun and interesting way. They've, um, they've, they've, they've bridged it. They have the silliness and they have the seriousness in both regard. Yeah. And it's a, it's a difficult balancing act, but I, I mean, I, I love hearing Sean Bean just read random quotes from people. And like, I think animal husbandry is one where it's, I think it's, uh, it's fond a, of pigs. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it makes me laugh every single time. Yeah. But um, it's funny that there's like a quote from Scott Adams in there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The Dilbert I mean, guy, the fucking insane Dilbert oh, guy. Yeah, yeah. it's and not all of them are winners. The element of whimsy is somewhat important because I feel like yeah. Yeah. the nature of the game is such that some absurd, funny things can happen. If so, if yes. it takes so like you can't have a game take itself so desperately seriously because then how are you going to react to a game like that and when you have the notion of like well I almost had a dark age but then I saw this really cool mountain and that put me right, right over the edge <laughs> right. like yeah. things along those lines it, well the this the seriousness of 5 comes mostly in the form of like it wants you to be amazed at things it wants mm, to celebrate yeah. history probably even more than all of the other civ games there is just this sense of wonder and excitement reverence and discovery reverence yeah and all those other things that john avery whitaker allows you to experience the imagination <laughs> in his station. imagination station <laughs> yeah. it's like it's just and th- this was important for me for my history with civ 5 because you know i got it this um like my last year in college and uh, then I had a complete and total depressive breakdown where I could not leave my room Oof. for days at a time. Yeah. Uh, I ended up losing like 20 pounds in a single month. Oof. Jesus. Cause I wasn't eating. And on the days where I could sort of do any kind of anything with my brain and also my room was really cold. So I had to fire up my computer and play a game to heat it up. Oh, no. <laughs> Comes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. <laughs> and it was this, it was this game became like my lifeline. Honestly, wow. it was like, it was sort of my reintroduction to being able to make decisions and like, mm. um, take decisive action on things for a month. My brain just basically needed to fully reset itself. And on those good days, I would just go to town on civilization and, you know, beat Catherine the great's ass to get to space or whatever, or something like that. There was something about the hope as false as like illusory as it is. And as illusory as like, I know it is it's, it was nice to see, some degree of positivity somewhere in my life uh, mm. because it was not going to be found anywhere in my in those circumstances and to to get these moments of like oh there are things worth celebrating there are things that are so amazing that are out there there are um 
wonders. amazing things to read yeah. and quotes to 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 find and and things that that are still there to be learned and appreciated and explored. I would say that there's an extent to which this game can sometimes make you think like when you create you get like you said you get an excerpt from some famous novel, some great novel of the 19th century or something along those lines. Yeah. You think to yeah. yourself, like, that would be interesting to read. I wish I could, you know, learn about this. You learn about new things just because of the level of specificity with cultures you learn about cultural figures you might not have been exposed to before. And even if it's in a simplified version, you still learn a name, you still learn a, an event, you learn about a, geogra- a geological feature on the planet that you never heard of, things along those lines. Yeah. And then if you really want, you can pop into the Civilopedia and you can read even more. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and in my in my case, I uh, I really got into Civ 6 in 2018. I was working a job in New York that I really hated and I decided I wanted to <laughs> quit and I wound up moving over here. But like a lot of my life seemed to revolve around being mad online. And what I realized <laughs> with Twitter was that, or with, with civilization was that I would put my phone down and not give a shit about anything in the news or any, whatever new outrage was coming around. Like mm-hmm. it just, it, it was dumb, but like, and then, you know, like when I got bored of the music, there was this, uh, I felt bad because my wife had asked me to listen to the first season of crime town, which is about her hometown of Providence, Rhode Island. And mm-hmm. I found it very easy to listen to a show like that while playing Civ. And like, it's strange. It's, it's, for me, gaming comes and goes. Like I, I recently played through on an emulator. I played through all of Final Fantasy Tactics again, which is not an easy game, mm-hmm. but I just know it so well from being a teenager that I right. knew how to sort of game it and beat it. And I did that. I'll probably play through Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy VI just because it's nostalgia stuff. That when I was a teen, you know, tween, I like Disco Elysium, but I, I feel like I can never really get in the mindset of. And then if you step away from that game long enough, you have no idea what the fuck is going on right. when you come back to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Civilization has basically been the only game that I regularly play. And like, I know exactly what to expect with it. And yeah. yet I find myself sitting down wanting to do it sometimes. And it's like, well, it, it, it's, it's not necessarily like it's great for your eyes or your brain to be staring at a computer, but it's certainly better than fucking being on Twitter <laughs> yeah. or working. And yeah. Yeah. there's a, yeah. yeah, there's a weird kind of... I don't know, kind of like sense of possibility when you first open up a new map. Like it's just yeah. a strange feeling. And I, uh, I mean, I can recall I was recovering from surgery on my knee when I was 21 mm-hmm. and I was able to get it to work on a MacBook. Uh, and this would have been wow. 2005. I was playing Civ 3 or Civ 4. I think it was 4. And uh, yeah, I can just clearly remember, you know, um, just enjoying kind of like the deliberateness of it while I was fucked up on painkillers or like, you know, times that same year or previous year, you know, I remember being over Christmas break and playing as the Greeks, I think, and like learning about all these names. And I was like, yeah, it would be interesting to learn about Greek civilization and stuff. And just like, even just learning the names of cities, there was this sense of sort of feeling like you were kind of learning. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I, I've always appreciated like it's obvious flaws, notwithstanding in terms of its worldview and also in terms of its mechanics it's just always kind of fun and you're always along for the ride. And um, mm. I feel like there's a certain kind of person who doesn't really get into video games except for Civ. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like I'm kind of, I've become one of them. It's dads. <laughs> it's a dad game. Proto dad. My dad was yelling about my city's going to shit. I'm like my entire fucking civilization. Humanity as a whole is going <laughs> yeah. to shit. Cause these goddamn ice barbarians got unlocked because you motherfuckers had to burn coal over yep. and over again. The previous generation just doesn't understand the responsibilities we have. Well, no, yeah. They can just have one city. <laughs> we have the world. Let's go ahead and uh, you know sort of take this through now to the to the yeah. end, right? The end of a given game. For me, um, you know, we went from the atomic era into the information era. 
Uh, global warming started to kick in, but we hadn't burned too much, yeah. so it actually wasn't a big deal. Gary mm-hmm. and his Goobers was a band that I formed. They went on the road. They nice. were my secondary band. My primary band was doing amazingly at spreading Crabtown ladies, but they uh, they failed their <laughs> concert on a 9% roll. Oh. Infuriating. And then... To add insult to injury, I was like, you know, I was at the point at the end of my game where I was just really doing pretty well. And I was like, yeah, I'll just fucking go for the science victory. But uh, fucking Gorgo beat me on the diplomacy track and God, I lost. It. So that was my game. I continued playing to see if I could, what would happen if I created an ice age by lowering the global temperature <laughs> to like four Celsius below the threshold with direct carbon capture. And it, it didn't, yeah, it didn't, there was negative carbon. That's, but, that's uh, what Steven Pinker's little cloud ships are going to do. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My, I, I also did a space race victory because I hadn't done in this game yet um but i also hadn't done a nuclear war yet so i i learned how to do all that it's very confusing in this game it's very it's, complicated it's, it's hard yeah. to get my head around how the nukes work exactly but i did manage to kill uncounted amounts of people so i'd Great. i'd call that a success mm-hmm. um i don't mind the space victory it's still a little funny that there's i think it should just be balanced towards getting the launch being the ending, but instead they kind of add this other aspect where you devote production and aluminum resources to like, uh, uh, building a space lasers or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think the space ending is very good. I think uh, as far as the endings go in Civ six, it's the one I like Civ six for whatever reason, just doesn't get me off the way that Civ five does. Well, I, I, I finish a game. I feel like it just takes longer too mm-hmm. like this mm. game just takes a really really long time to finish like I, you could i could get through a civ 5 game in a very long single day and i can't yeah. do that with yeah. six. Oh wow and it, it leaves me feeling weirdly empty and it could be if i went back to five i would feel the same way it, m- it might just be that my time for civilization games has passed yeah um and i just need to you've entered a dark age is what you're saying yeah i'm I'm never i'm never gonna be a father so (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't mean that you can't enter an heroic age at some point in your life though brian yeah Mm -hmm. that's right josh i i feel like because i missed five six just feels like a different game yeah it's like the same mechanic same concept it's like within the same sort of lore extended universe but four and six are so different that i just like you said i think my golden age of being a civ player was four um Mm. And to me, that was sort of like the ideal, but also like, yeah, yeah, I'm reaching, I'm reaching sort of undeniable middle age here shortly. So of course, <laughs> I'm gonna look back on the game I played when I was like 21 and fucking like, like you know, like the the the, the warrior god king of all the twinks. And I was like, yeah, back in those days, it was great. But uh, yeah, but it's fun. Six is fun. Yeah, that's no on problems. Brian's business cards, actually. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of a lot of ex twinks here on that's this right. podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of us are ex twinks now. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, you and AJ, you just aged out of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we've talked about endings, uh, the endings of the game. And now I feel is as good a time as any to end this episode of the worst of all possible worlds. So, um, uh, Nate, do you have any plugs? Yes. So um, to be honest with you, recently, I haven't been on a lot of shows just because I'm still recovering from uh, uh, a strategic intervention by a small insect directly into my lungs while yeah. bike riding. Ugh. So uh, I'm actually feeling good about my ability to podcast that I made it through a nearly three hour episode. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for your time for show. You're very welcome. I do produce four shows. They are what a hell of a way to die. Trash Future, Lions Led by Donkeys, and Kill James Bond. So you have 
a leftist military and veterans podcast talking about news and veteran stuff, but not from a right wing perspective. You have a show about the psychic horror of capitalism and how you can make yourself smarter with business success. You have a show is basically about military blunders and disasters. And you have a show uh, about uh, basically three trans people talking about James Bond as they refer to as a famous tuxedo dipshit. Right. Uh, James Bond <laughs> review all the Bond movies and now have gone beyond Bond because they've run out of films. So now they've reviewed all the Bourne movies. Oh, hell yes. all the Jack Amazing. Ryan movies. Yeah. And what, what I saw talks, Totally Spies. That's the most recent one. Totally right? Spies was the most recent one. So yeah, they're, they're, so listen to some of my shows and then you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at In These Deserts. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank Amazing. you so much for, you know, coming on again, Nate. And yeah. glad we finally got to do one that's fun for you. Yes. Um, I, 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 <laughs> in terms of stuff that we have coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we are going to be doing our first ever live show. Uh, this is going to be happening uh, at the New York City Pinball Championships. So if you are interested in that, we'll have the link in the description. Check it out. There's a discount. If you want to get the discount, you can go to patreon.com slash worst of all. Sign up for five bucks a month and get access to a whole bunch of really great back content as well. So when we talk about civilization as a game, uh, we've heard a lot of stories, I think, here today about how it got us through uh, some pretty dark times. Um even, you know, I would play it mostly backstage at a show, and while I was having a lot of fun doing the show, it was sort of an isolating track in the show, and it could get very lonely, and it was a way of sort of dealing with that loneliness. Yeah. And I think the inherent optimism in the game is so refreshing to play now, just because we are kind of facing what appears to be the end of civilization. Um, yeah. But there's something so wonderful about a game that appeals to that little part in all of us that looks at the end of the world, witnesses the catastrophe around us, like is so scared about the ice barbarians just breaking out of their ice <laughs> and destroying us all, and looks at all of that horror and says instead, just one more turn. I'm the worst of all possible AJs. I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. And I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. So many possible All right, folks, that is it for today. As always, you can check us out over on Twitter at TWOAPW or our individual accounts. Josh is at Bosch J. AJ is at The Fuzzy Mask. And I, Brian, am at Spocks underscore Brian. Our guest, of course, is Nate Bethea. You can follow him at In These Deserts, also on Twitter.com. And remember, we are going to be at the New York City Pinball Championships. You've heard it twice already. But we're going to be doing that August 19th. It's coming right up. And if you subscribe to us at patreon.com slash worst of all, you can check our pinned post and see that we have a discount code to come and see us on the 19th. But that ticket is not just for seeing us. You can also come in and play pinball. No quarters. It's all great. And speaking of subscribing, if you subscribe now for the $10 tier, you can listen to our off-the-cuff, just-hanging-out chat, the Lads Cast, uh, where we just talk about whatever comes into our head. We just put out our first one. This will be a once-monthly thing. 
Once we get to 300 patrons of either tier, then we're going to add another feature where AJ and I, and maybe Josh occasionally, but mainly AJ and I, will be reviewing movies fancy movie time. And if we get to 1,000 patrons, and I think someday we will, we are going to go to Colorado Springs, Colorado 80995, because Focus on the Family built a family attraction based on wit's end for all of the Adventures and Odyssey fans to make their pilgrimage to, and we are going to go there, and we are going to document it, and we are going to have a great, or possibly terrible, time. And I'm sure you don't want to miss out on that. Alright folks, see you next time.